This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the show. It's Thursday, February the 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26. All right, so if you're living down the Avalon Peninsula, some really messy weather coming. Of course, it's winter. We're going to get some bad weather. But a combo of ice and ice pellets and freezing rain and rain and snow is going to make for a miserable evening. So if you've got anything that you need to get done and attended to during the day, please do before the weather hits. It's going to be absolutely motley. All right, let's check in Calgary at the Scotty's Tournaments of Heart. Scotty's Tournaments of Heart. Tournament of Hearts. <laughs> Man, here we go. Team Stacy Curtis had a tough loss against Saskatchewan yesterday, but then rebound to beat Alberta. Alberta were undefeated at the time, and Stacy pulls off a draw to the button to win 8-7 against Alberta, so that's a fantastic victory. And for you Toronto Maple Leafs fans out there, and I know there's lots of you, Austin Matthews, I mean, what a season this kid is having. So he's back playing in his home state of Arizona last night, gets a pair of goals for his 50th and 51st. So this is actually a pretty big deal. He's on pace to score 76. There hasn't been a 70-goal score in the NHL since 92-93 when Timu Solani and Alexander McGillney both scored 70-plus. There's only been 40, or pardon me, 14 70-plus goal seasons in the NHL's history, and Matthews on pace to score 76 this year, which is absolutely amazing. Uh, it broke the record as the fastest American, be that Kevin Stevens record. Last year, uh, McDavid scored 15 61 games, and of course, the record held by the great one. Gretzky scored 50 in 39 games. <laughs> Unbelievable stuff. Also, it was on this date, for hockey fans, you'll remember this if you're old enough, on this date, February 22nd of 1980, the Miracle on Ice. The Americans were a bunch of no-namers, a bunch of amateur hockey players. Just had a couple of guys had some minor league experience going up against the five-time Olympic gold medalist champions, the Soviet Union. So the first game of the medal round, they actually come back from a 3-2 deficit, scored twice in the third to beat the Soviets 4-3, went on to win the gold medal, of course, beating the Finns in 1980 at home at Lake Placid, the Miracle on Ice. Al Michaels, famous call, right? Do you believe in miracles? Great stuff. Miracle on Ice. Okay. So, everybody knows that we're all sharing the same concerns regarding going to the grocery store. I have to grocery shop today, and of course, with the storm pending, the grocery stores will be absolutely packed. Some interesting stories out there about when the grocery stores, the big chains, how they decide when to rotate the goods, you know, generally speaking, with a couple of days before what they call expiry, which I still think is a big conversation. I think we're being misled and led down the garden path when we talk about best before dates versus when it's actually no good to eat anymore. So they talk about the millions of kilograms donated to food banks. And then I see another story after I read that one, a story that was from Global News out of New Brunswick talking about the unsustainable nature of food banks and demand on them. So without partners like the big grocery store chains, and I'm not trying to give them any accolades or pats on the back necessarily, but there's big conversations to be had here. When the governments recognize crisis, generally speaking, they mobilize to attend to it. In the food issue, 
Not so much. You know, a food bank was not created to be a lifeline for people for decades and decades and decades. It was a Band-Aid. And now all of a sudden that Band-Aid has been turned into concrete. It's a permanent feature for so many millions of Canadians that without a food bank, they would absolutely starve. So to add to it, we're the only modern country in the first world that does not have a school food program. I think it's really time to do that. I mean, when you look at the stories about the numbers of families and children that are living in poverty and food insecure households, and this is not socialism. This is reality. This is about keeping people fed. I mean, if you talk about what the issues are with being malnourished, if you want to talk about the amount of money that it would cost to provide school children uh, lunch and or breakfast or both in the school versus what it entails when they're chronically absent from school and or they become quite ill because they are unhealthy, unwell, malnourished, and Anyway, I saw a couple of stories that got me going on that one this morning. All right, price of gas up. All the other fuels down. Gas up a couple of cents. There you go. Also, there's lots of people still wanting to talk about the whole nature of the confusing, confounding comments coming to Federal Minister Stephen Gibo regarding federal investment in large roadwork projects, whatever that actually means, we don't know. And again, like I said yesterday, I should not have to own a, an Enigma machine to decode what's coming from ministers up along okay sticking with the roads and issues regarding the roads i am completely confused by this one so a few things so when we knew that the crash happened just out of outside of arnold's cove and a couple of young women were killed then there was the vague comment coming from the rcmp that there was suspicion that the driver of the suv that hit and struck and killed the two young ladies was potentially impaired which in many people's minds might be reckless to begin with because unless it can be determined through analysis of a blood sample, maybe, just maybe, wait for those results to be brought forward before those types of comments are out there because you know the way it works in this country. If people are led down to the courthouse, they're guilty before they've even presented in front of a judge. And if there's some suspicion of impairment, then of course people will deduce that that person was actually under the influence. I've heard from people in the community that know this 71-year-old man, and he has been absolutely pummeled societally because people just guess or they assume that because the RCMP said that, that he was impaired. So they sent the analysis up along to a national laboratory, and now the results are back. When I saw this post on social media yesterday, I really didn't know what to make of it. So they said that the results are back in hand. But... They won't tell us what the results are. You know, the investigation continues. The results are cut and dry. You know, is or was the driver of the SUV over the legal limit or not? End of story. If he was, then it seems like a pretty clear-cut path. I'm not a law enforcement expert. I don't work in law enforcement. But like the rest of you, when we know that if someone has tested positive and over the legal limit for alcohol and or drugs, whether they were involved in an accident or not, that's it. Right? There's a number. It's cut and dry. And apparently we're not going to find out at this point anyway what the results were. And yet that fella is being assumed impaired involving a crash that killed two young women. Just anyway, I don't know what to make of that one. And in, in addition to that, I still think there's plenty of people out there quite frustrated when you see the the turnstile at the courthouse and some people who have been convicted of very serious crimes, including most recently Joshua Burt. He, you know, he pled guilty himself to avoid the trial and a sentence for drunk driving causing death three years and three months. 
I've been told by many that I shouldn't compare these types of crimes and all the cases are different. That's all true. But three years and three months for causing someone's death as you willfully got behind the wheel under the influence and you know the results. Okay, let's keep going. This story is going to turn into something bigger. You can bet your bottom dollar. So at Her Majesty's Penitentiary, whether or not you want to talk about only one uh, reply to the tender bid for the construction of a new replacement for that antiquated dungeon, but the stories regarding the inability for those inside the walls of the prison to be able to see and meet and speak with their lawyers, look, regardless of what you think of someone who's been accused of a crime, this becomes a human rights story. This is going to blow up. There's no doubt about it. Reminder, somewhere in the neighborhood of 70, maybe sometimes 75% of those incarcerated at HMP are on remand. They haven't been convicted of anything. So the ability for an adequate, efficient, effective defense is pretty crucial in criminal justice. So if they're unable to meet with their attorneys, that's not only a problem for them. That's going to become a problem for all of us. So just think about it. You know, sometimes we hear the stories that the lawyers are telling us that at some point when, say, for instance, someone who's in HMP appears via Zoom for their initial court proceedings, their lawyer and the prisoner are not even, or the accused, I should say, are not even on the same page. They don't even know what the strategy is, where they're going. And so consequently, the lawyers are at some point going to bring forward a human rights challenge on this one. So when we think that, you know, well, if you committed a crime, you do it the time. That's the nature of the beast, and you're not wrong. There has to be punishment, and I th- would assume hopefully some more rehabilitation. But this issue with them not unable to see their attorney is not going to be the end of the story here. This is just going to get worse, and it's going to get worse for all of us because that is absolutely a problem, regardless of what you think. All right. This one here, sometimes I'm loath to bring up certain conversations because there's a lot of bad faith uh, discussions to be had on very contentious societal issues. We know, and you've heard me say many times, that some of the evils lurking around every digital corner are a huge problem. Not only for adults when we talk about disinformation and whatever, but for children. I mean, the studies are showing quite clearly that their obsession with social media is having a distinct impact on their ability to control their anxiety and depression and even outbursts of violence. This story is similar, albeit somewhat different. This is about online pornography which for some can be absolutely problematic, no question. But now the discussions federally, and specifically coming from the Conservative Party leader, Mr. Polyev, talking about the need to change federal legislation for age verification to access online pornography. Now, if you stand back and think about it, you know, they'll say, well, this is all common sense. They have to verify your age. But no real understanding how that's going to happen. With a digital ID, there's some comments out there about a face scan via a web camera to verify your potential age, even though you can be 15 and look 19. So I'm not really sure how this works. In concept, protecting children should be all our collective goal, obviously. But this was a strange story. I'm not so sure it even works. Just think about it. I want to protect, I'm a father. I want to protect my children. But if and when anyone who accesses a pornography site has to verify their age, regardless of the mechanism that's chosen by, say, for instance, if the Polyev-led government is in place, then what? Because what happens if and when, all of a sudden, everyone who has ever gone online has, is exposed because of some sort of hack? So your face is displayed or your digital ID or whatever the case may be. So, yes, protecting children, but does this even do it? 
I'm not really sure. It's sort of a strange tactic, uh, tactic. So if you want to take it on, and yes, there's big conversations again that seldom have. <sighs> encouraging discussions or conversations regarding some of the trans issues that are being debated across the country, whether it be in Alberta with Premier Smith or uh, Premier Higgs in New Brunswick. And I think it's, you know, it's going to be difficult to have a reasonable conversation, but we're happy to take it on if you're so inclined. All right, so the Hospitality Newfoundland and Labrador conference is ongoing here at the Delta in the city of St. John's. So there's some $30 million that's been uh, coming from ACOA for the Atlantic provinces over the course of four years to enha- enhance tourism. There's also discussion about trying to, not only for the industry to rebound, and it's a big deal. In this province, visitors spend in excess of a billion dollars, maybe 1.2 is the number being thrown around at the conference. Nothing quite like out-of-province money to give the economy a nice uh, shot in the arm. But recruiting employees and trying to move to more shoulder season activity and year-round functions of the tourism industry. So I do think there's a growth section of the economy that is absolutely involving tourism, and it's important to everyone here in the province. But a couple of questions. You know, we've seen some debate and or pushback against the provincial government, for instance, but some $3.75 million to be spread around the entirety of all the airport authorities in the province, and one of the monies, may, some of the monies may indeed be used for that WestJet thrice-weekly trip from St. John's International to Gatwick in London. Access to the province is going to be a key issue here, in addition to trying to hire the workforce required for an excellent experience. This one you know, there was a lot of reaction to the Verbo ad. I'm not so sure it got to me a whole lot because, for instance, unless you knew that Eyes Dubai was directly connected with this province, then people watching that ad sitting with their feet up in New York City, they had no idea that it might be a negative connotation uh, about this province. But Air Canada, national airline, used to be a nationalized airline. Some of their advertising, you just had to shake your head. So the most recent ad that they've sent out about reduced fares is from Vancouver to Halifax. Man, I mean, are they joking? It's just so lazy and silly and uninformed. And I would suggest embarrassing for a national airline to have those types of ads. How many times do we have to see that? Generally, I just kind of let it go and I think, well, you know, that says more about them than it says about me. It says about us. But... Where does that stop? We've even had federal members of parliament send out their glossy flyers on my dime talking about from coast to coast, from Victoria to Halifax or Victoria to Sydney. Anyway, that Air Canada has got some people up in arms. So we doing out there this morning, David? Quick note, I think we're going to have some P3 conversation and some travel nurse conversations today. But when the Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne, was asked about, asked about the travel nurse issue of especially the story that broke in the Globe and Mail, $35.6 million over the course of five months for travel agency nurses, and then some of the add-on frustration regarding cable bills and furniture and air fryers and travel and meal expenses, which apparently was simply paid $1.6 million to Canada Health Labs or Canadian Health Labs, and the money hadn't even been dispersed to the travel agency nurses. And the ministers always said that the travel agency nurses are a quote-unquote necessary evil, and that whoever was in power at the time or at the helm of NL Health Services, well, I guess it was the four regional health authorities at that time, they would have done the same thing to hire the travel agency nurses in an effort to not see further procedures postponed or cancelled or emergency room closures. Fair enough, but it really doesn't seem like the minister and or the premier have a firm grasp on what happened in the first place. You know, and even the premier himself saying, you know, things like they're going to investigate and they better, but things like sometimes things go off the rails. 
the buck stops where the buck stops. Yes, the folks who are at the helm of NL Health Services who were involved in that contract, which was sole sourced, sole source contract, in and of itself is a major problem. But to simply say in a laissez-faire sort of off-the-cuff comment that sometimes things go off the rails, well, with all due respect to people who put their hat in the ring, get elected to an extremely thankless job, but the buck stops at the desk of the minister. The buck stops at the desk of the premier. So we're not talking about pittance and small potatoes here. If that money refunneled and refocused could have improved the lot of lives of uh, RNs and nurse practitioners or anyone working in healthcare, you know, to improve the work-life balance, the toxic workplace, the inequities between the public service registered nurse and a travel agency nurse making who knows how much more than our nurses, that, I mean, this is a problem. You know, it seems to have been maybe a little bit shrugged off, and I don't think it's a shrug-off issue. It's a major league issue because, we, again, regardless of who you're going to vote for, we're all going to need access to health care when and if we need it. All right, we're on Twitter. for VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That's up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Meant to polish off the preamble with this. Yesterday we had a plea from a senior right here on Kemal Road. The house was absolutely snowed in, and he needed to get out, and he needed some help. And so I just want to say a personal thank you. And we don't do this maybe often enough, but when folks jump up and respond to a call to action like they did yesterday, so John Woodfine and the crowd of Parties Waste Management took care of that gentleman yesterday. Big thanks. Big thanks from us, and I'm sure that the uh, man and his wife who needed the help and got the help from you guys, so John, Parties Waste Management, Bravo. Let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for CBS. That's Barry Patton. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, good. Yeah, I've seen that story as well. That was uh, heartwarming in the, today's world. It's nice to see stories like that sometimes. Good stuff. It is, absolutely. Uh, Patty, I wanted to call. I don't take too much of your time. I know there's an issue. There's a hot issue all week, and this nursing issue and the agency, agency, uh, nursing agency fiasco, I guess you want to call it, whatever term people want to put on it. But I want to bring it to a level of, well, I, get, I get a constituent of mine, actually, who's just finishing part of a group of nurses, uh, just finishing their studies, and uh, they're applying. Of course, they want to stay here and work like you would, and uh, they've applied. And she had offered, just got a job offer last week, of a temporary position until April. No other extras, no bonuses, no nothing else. Actually going to cut back $5 an hour until she provides... Uh, uh, the hospital human resources with her license, which we all know that's formality. It's an administrative thing. It's not her fault. Uh, but yet she's for that time period until they actually produce the license. They're going to take $5 off her uh, salary. And her question was, what incentive? Why would I stay here when I can go elsewhere? She's a young woman. She's not, you know, a single woman, I guess, or whatever. She got freedom that, you know, others may not have. Why would I stay here? Why would I stay here and work here when you're being undervalued? I mean, basically, that's the, that's the feeling they're all getting. And there's a group of them, actually, Patty. And there's a couple, some got full-time permanent, but most of them got full-time, par, uh, t- t- temporary full-time, sorry. And they're only for a certain period of time. And I guess, you know, it's kind of interesting, because I was aware of this issue before the nursing agency issue broke last week with the Globe Mail story. So this day, I was talking to the family prior to this, and their frustration, and they're upset over it, and like you would be. And, and I agree with them, actually. It's a... You know, and then all the while, at the same time, the premier was in Dubai recruiting nurses, and we had our own nurses here who feel undervalued. So, 
you know, and it's not for me to lay a dollar figure on what they should be paid or shouldn't be paid as a market value. That's a union issue. But it's about the respect, Patty. And I spoke yesterday to another media, and my words are, and I don't, I don't mean some other. I mean, it's time for Minister Osborne and the Premier sometimes to show the proper respect to our doctors and our nurses. Because things are going to get jammed up. And I know you, I just listened to your prior, and I had a note made of it too. The buck stops with the Premier and your Minister, you know, and yesterday I heard, actually I heard the Premier, or Minister at a news conference, and he was basically distancing himself, and if you were in the same situation as we were, basically you'd do the same thing, and the Premier kind of echoed that, and then the Premier says he asked the Minister to do an investigation, like, I'm sorry, and no disrespect to any of those gentlemen, I mean, they're, they got a job doing, it's not an easy job, we all know that, but... You don't investigate yourself. I mean, a few days prior, and Yvette Coffey and our leader, Tony Wakeham, asked for the other general to investigate. That is, that's what I think is a fair investigation, because as we know, the story's not been said a lot. They started at the eighth floor. They called in emails and that originated on the eighth floor with our premier staff, and then it just went from there, and then we turned into a sole source bidder again. And it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a lot more to this story than meets the eye, and there's other players involved, I've been told. But I'll let us saw it. They've got to do a better job of this, Patty, managing this. They're not managing this issue well, and it's really infuriating a lot of people. I know this lady in my district and her family are, are really upset, and many other families, and rightfully so. And we hear it, and I'm listening to your show, and you're hearing it daily. I mean, they got to do a better job of this, and this is just not its not cutting it, and it's not, you know, you're going down to the bar and you're recruiting 60 or 70 nurses, which is all fine, but all the while, your own nurse to leave in the province? We yeah. have a big problem. Look, I don't think it's a problem to go to Ireland or India or Dubai to try to recruit healthcare professionals. Fair enough, because it's a really competitive world. They're, they're in demand. They're highly mobile, so fair ball. But how this snowballed to this stage is problematic because if it has an impact for the workplace environment, which it does, obviously, and there's no end in sight because now we have a firm reliance on these nurses. For me, the number one problem that I see here is a sole source contract. Like, I don't know the relationship between whoever emailed someone working in the, on the eighth floor and how this contract was uh, let, but... If we are anybody working in procurement or in contracts and negotiations representing senior bureaucracy and or at the ministerial level, unless we had a quick look around to see what travel agency nurses look like and you know how they were being utilized elsewhere, the agencies that have the best reputation, the fees charged by different associations or organizations, and we land on Canadian health labs, which apparently is charging twice the national rate. I mean, a sole source contract that is the most expensive in town that turns into a firm reliance and uh, has ripple effect throughout the entirety of healthcare. this is simply not, a, it's not just a story about $35 million. It's much bigger than that. And I will inevitably get some cross emails from maybe members of the government and or their, their supporters but you can't shrug your shoulders at this one and you can't tell me everyone would have made the same choice because I would like to think that if it was me with the pen in hand I wouldn't have signed a sole source contract with the most expensive game in town no, and fair points, Patty, and I think we, I mean, we agree, and I think a lot of people will agree, and sure, a lot will disagree, but you're right, and you say, I mean, I've been on the other side in government, I wasn't, wasn't elected member, I was there, and first thing you do, most times you do, is you do a jurisdictional scan, you'd go across, you'd do research on this company, and you'd check with other provinces, place to do business, and do background checks, you're looking at almost $40 million, and I like to remind, I say this often, I've said it to you many times, it's not, it's not their money, it's not Fury's, or Minister Osmond's, or Premier Fury's, sorry, their money, it's, it's a public money, it's money your money, it's all our money, and if you're spending almost $40 million, 
and with no accountability really that's what it seems to be and now they don't know now they're, you know, they're trying to bar the barn door after everything is out and now they're going to ask for the minister to do an investigation which they need to go and ask the Auditor General to have a full on look investigation of this and tell us what what happened why it happened and make sure this don't happen again I mean that's the way all these things should be done and hopefully they will they will do that uh, but we'll have to wait and see I would say the next steps beyond that would be give us a base understanding of exactly not only what the issue is today, but the pathway to, to ending our reliance on travel nurses. Like, what does that look like? Because at this point, with the snowball gaining a lot of steam and momentum going down that hill, how does it stop? Because that's not even been part of the conversation. In other provinces, they've got timelines associated with removing the reliance, whether that be refunding that type of money back into the public system, whether that be wage increases or whatever the case may be. So give me some idea about how this is going to either stall and then consequently stop. Yeah, no, that's no, true. And I mean, a few weeks ago, I mean, in my role as health critic, I questioned some stuff on the travelling nurse. And again, our leader asked, well, to only wake him. And I mean, and Minister Osmond dismissed as lesser evil, but he never really, he wasn't really caught up in the point. And again, it's another point I was going to raise you all to raise it, but it seems like the Minister and the Premier are really not connected to this file like they should be. It seems like now they're catching up like the rest of us. And that's 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 a worrisome thing as well. And when you look at a sole source contract of that nature, and it's just a lot of, uh, well, and I'll answer questions, Patty, and I think that the government has always responsibility to the public, to uh, to us in the Flanders Labradorians, to uh, clarify what's gone wrong, and I think the Auditor General is the only answer to doing that. Yeah, I think we've got the information on hand. You know, I, I understand the request for the AG to get involved, and the Auditor General's office is really important, but with the facts, as we already understand them uh, via access to information, you know, there's some explaining to be done here, uh, and we'll. I'm happy to keep chasing that particular story. But did you also want to talk something about P3s before we run out of time? Yes, Patty. I just wanted a couple of minutes, not long. But uh, P3s actually last week, uh, Minister uh, Minister Abbott actually announced that they were thinking about moving the P3 process to the roads, roads work. And I mean, I've been. I was transportation critic for a long time, a lot of years, and I'm, I've always been an advocate for road work and, you know, been advocating for and, you know, against these different issues. And I'm at a loss to how the P3 process is going to apply to roads. You know, uh, you're going to have, like, so you're going to have 40 or 50, 60 kilometers out of probably 10,000, 15,000. I used to know that number. Kilometers of road the province looks after. How does that look? Like, how is that, how is that going to be applied? And then the minister is very proud of, he seems really proud of the past successes in the P3 process. And, I mean, I, I don't know if we've had a real great success rate when it looks at P3s. I mean, I'm looking at the penitentiary fiasco going on again. Now we're down to one bidder again. You know, again, the Grand Falls, Greenwood uh, deficiencies. We had the same thing at West Memorial. Uh, you know, the mental health facilities. I've spoken about dozens of times. Thirty-nine million dollars more a year later went, went to the, you know, went to a bidder that was less than we could have done cheaper and and faster by another bidder. And it was no, no clearer answers on that. I've, we've argued about the matrices, how these are scored, how these are presented. I mean, the list goes on. So I don't think for a second it's it's a successful process. I think that again, I think I've called for this too. We need to go back and review the full P3 process and try to figure out what's wrong because there are flaws with it. So instead of throwing more things in there and road work, I maybe I maybe Tom will tell some maybe it'll prove me wrong, but I I've, I don't know. It's something about that one just don't don't jive with me. I don't know how that's going to work. And so TWTI plow lifts the blade and Whitburn and drops it again. Norman's Cove or Arnold's Cove, wherever it's going to go, and out Bishop Falls, they do the same thing. And uh, it's just a disjointed service. I don't know how it's going to work. And it's, to me, it's, uh, it's it's akin now to uh, a private contract looking after the Paradise turnoff to the to the uh, Donovan's Industrial Parks on the Ring Road and the rest. 
just be maintained by TI. It just makes no sense. And unless someone can clarify better for me, I don't, I don't see how it, how it ever makes sense. So I just wanted to, uh, bring, you know, bring that to light because this issue come up, I guess, last week, a week or so ago. Well, if the work is done up to standards, and that's what they're talking, you know, saying that's going to be maintenance up to national standards. Okay, if the work is done appropriately and timely in a timely fashion, fair enough. What I'd like to know is what the math looks like. So give me an idea over the course of this 30-year contract, what we thought would be the need for how many people would be working in snow clearing and ice management and or just a simple general road maintenance over the course of 30 years, working for the government, uh, represented by NAEP versus what we think it's going to look like with this contract. Now, I, I, I understand that until the bids are in, that we're not going to have anything to evaluate against. But what have we done so far with math? You know, what did we think the public, the you know, the current and traditional approach to this type of contract, what do we think it would have cost us? And then comparatively, when we get a bid in hand, let's see the comparison. And if it doesn't work, let's just change our tune. But, you know, just to tell me that something in vague reference is a success, I think it's debatable. And plus, we don't, you can't qualify something as a success until you've actually gone through the entirety of a contract. So whether it be 60-bed long-term care facilities in Gander, Grand Falls, Windsor, the Cornerbrook Hospital, the Penitentiary, the replacement for St. Clair's, we won't know how successful these are until we're well into a contract because it's short-term relief for long-term potential pain. So I'd really like to see some numbers here that justifies this decision. Yeah, no, fair enough. And I mean, yeah, and the numbers, and, and you're right, you got to compare apples to apples, and this is not really, you know, think about a building to a road, it's a bit of a difference, but, uh, you know, fair points. And one other thing, Patty, before I go, is uh, on this same issue, morale of workers, you're working for TI now, and that's in one of those depots, and that's your law view, and you're, you're listening to your minister, basically introducing P3 process to road work. I've talked to a lot of them, and I know a lot of them personally, actually, and maybe the minister should do the same, but I tell you, they're very concerned. This is the beginning of the end. And I know that Jerry uh, uh, Earl has been spoken about this Nate, but I mean, this he got a you know separate fight to fight. But on, on, a, on a bigger picture, the morale, the morale, the morale issue was really bottoming out. They, the morale was already down a bit because they're they feel that they're underpaid and underappreciated compared to others in the field. That's that's a union issue, of course. But uh, this only adds to it. And I and I you know I do sympathise with them. It's not a nice feeling to be out there working to busiest time. And they're you know they're working a lot of hours these days with all the snow and whatnot. And then they're faced with the minister coming out making that announcement during, uh, you know, and basically putting their jobs in their mind, their jobs are starting to be jeopardized. So it's, uh, I think, uh, again, once again, this is one where I think Minister Abbott needs to provide more clarity, and I think that uh, they need to rethink or think this one out properly before they proceed, because I think proceed with caution if they're going to, but there's a lot of moving parts that they should address before they uh, go uh, all in. And an RFP does mean we're, you know, handcuffed to the idea. And another point before I have to go is not really sure how the financing is going to work. So we know it's a cost share between the the feds and the province, but does the private sector company that is successful in the bid, what's their role in financing? Because that's always been a question regarding P3s. Governments, generally speaking, can borrow at a cheaper rate than a private sector company, even if they're cash rich or cash flush. So how does the financing work? We don't really know at this point. That's another piece of it that has to be better understood. Uh, Barry, got to get to the break. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Patty. I always appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Barry Petten is the PC member for CBS. Let's take a break. When we come back, Tony, you're next to talk about the ambulance services. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Tony, you're on the air. Yes, thank you, Patty, for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, I can't compete with those educated men that were just in front of me talking about millions and millions of dollars. What I would like to uh, make a remark on is their ambulance service. Okay. And it has nothing to do about 
our service per se or the people that runs it or the people in the hospital what I can understand why I had to avail of an ambulance service a couple of times over the last several months and I can understand why do I get stuck for a bill for $115 to bring me to the hospital works when I'm into the hospital I don't have to pay a cent you know, it blows my mind. Like, that $115 is not enough money to pay for the fuel in Edmonds beside the couple of technicians that are looking after me. Can that be explained to me? Why do everybody in this province have to pay $115 for, to get in ambulance? Yeah, MCP doesn't cover it. It's one of the strange features of healthcare because we're told, you know, in contravention of the Healthcare Act of Canada, even people have uh, challenged things like paying for a parking meter. But here, you're right. The bill is 115 bucks. There's also a $50 escort fee uh, if it's not medically required. So, but my goodness gracious, I question it, and uh, I question it. I went through the government. I went to the powers that be. I said, you mean to tell me? Just for argument's sake, because I live here in paradise, that if I'm involved in a traffic accident and, and Patty's pants and I require an ambulance to bring me to the hospital to no fault of my own, I got to pay $115. Yeah, if you live on University Avenue and you're going to the health sciences, you got to pay $115. You're right. Yeah, but it should not. I don't think that should be covered on our MCP, is what I'm trying to get across. Yeah, I know exactly where you're coming from, Tony. And, you know, the Health Care Act, the ambulance service is actually splintered out. There's another piece of legislation, I think it's called the Health Insurance Act, that says exactly that right across the country. Canadians paying for their own ambulance services. I think there's a different fee in different provinces, but you're right, it's 115 bucks there. It's ridiculous. Fair enough. It's ridiculous. And, uh, and uh, uh, we're all this big hoobla about ambulance services trying to get everybody integrated and what not uh, I still won't have to pay $115 That's, I, I, I can't understand it honestly yeah let's do a little further compare and contrast here Tony because this is an interesting topic if I get lost in the woods or I'm on the yeah. Titan semi-submersible going down to the Titanic and the $20 million whatever it uh, took to, for that recovery process search and rescue yeah. doesn't charge you but still, we got to pay a bill to get an ambulance and emergency service. It's a fair right. point you're making. Oh, yes. No, I think it's bloody ridiculous. And uh, I'm doing this on Cal New because I'm disabled veteran, or not a veteran, sorry, senior. And, uh, you know, I had, to, I had to go and process it $115, Chilton's. Uh, you know, I'm paying my taxes. And uh, you charged me $115 to get an to go to hospitals. You know? Yes, sir. Understood. Oh, my goodness. And I, don't, I, I think... think that I, I, I think we should open this up and uh, question Minister Osborne on this. I mean, I, I, mean, I know uh, we're the only one in the provinces got an MCP program, but that should cover our ambulance fees. 
Yeah, there's still some out-of-pocket concerns out there regarding healthcare services in the country, and every province has some sort of plan, like in Ontario, they call it OHIP, and here it's MCP, and across the country they have the variety, and some of their coverages are different, right, whether it be with pharmaceuticals and other out-of-pocket expenses in the world of healthcare, but I hadn't heard this particular concern in a while, and I'm glad you brought it up, Tony. Yes, well, you know something, I'm not going to stop here. Okay. Because I'm going to pass this on because I think it is ridiculous if uh, a person, through no fault of their own, have to go to the hospital and got to pay to get there. I mean, my jumps, uh, you know, where we living to? Holy jumps. And talking about spending $35 million to bring in nurses, and I can't get to the hospital without costing me 115 bucks. Point taken, Tony. Well, I'm glad you brought it up. Yes, I'm going to pursue Patty, and I hope everybody can chime in on it, please. And how are you? How are you feeling? Well, I'm all right now, but I had, well, I brought it up, Patty. I uh, had the veil of ambulance service uh, two weeks ago, and uh, I didn't know but I was going to drop down dead. And I phoned ambulance, and I got no complaints. Everybody in the system is fantastic. But when you get a bill there to say, oh, you're going to have to pay us $115 to, to get you to the hospital, I said, my goodness gracious. You know, I'm on a disability pension. I'm back in the Fort Hospital two times a week for other classes, you know. Tony, I hope you're doing okay. I appreciate your call this morning. Let me know how it works out if you get anywhere with it. Yeah, well, I will. I hope uh, I hope your listeners can follow up as well and tell about their experiences. They're welcome to do exactly that. You take good care of yourself. Stay in touch, Tony. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's get a response to Tony from Leo on 3. Leo, you're on the air. Uh, morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, uh, Alberta, $400 for an ambulance. Is that right? Whoa. Yeah. Uh, I've been in one twice up there. Uh, here, I've been in an ambulance, oh, God, probably 10 times. It's $115, and one of the main reasons for it is if you didn't have a charge on $115, every John, Joe, and George that, went, that couldn't afford a taxi or for any sniffle or anything else would call an ambulance to get over to the hospital. It might be abused, but I would add to that, Leo, I'm not sure everybody even realizes, unless you've been in an ambulance and have got a bill, that you actually will get an invoice for an ambulance ride. And you're right, maybe it would be completely abused if there was no associated fee. There's also a thought out there that if I arrive at the emergency room in an ambulance and I get in to see the doctor quicker versus sitting in the waiting room, which is not true, you get triaged like everybody else. No, it is not true. You still lie out in the hallway if you're lucky enough to get a gurney or sit in a chair and wait just as long as anybody else unless you're basically when they do the triage find that your oxygen level is down at uh, 84 or something and you're not breathing or you're falling off the chair passing out that's the only way you're getting through quicker if you look normal enough to be able to sit in that chair you're going to wait till your turn comes up yeah you get triaged like everybody else regardless of how you arrive at the emergency room yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to let that man know that's the way it is. And I said the same thing myself. Well, $400 one in Alberta, uh, that one blew me away. 400 bucks is a pretty expensive ambulance ride. And, of course, if you're in a real emergency, you'd be willing to pay what you need to pay to get the help you need when you need it. But 400 bucks that's, that's a hefty bill. Leo, I appreciate the information. 
Okay. Have a good day. You too, sir. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, you're right, but I mean, I wonder how many people even realize there's a bill coming if you get an ambulance. Now, knock on wood, I have never been in the back of an ambulance, and I was aware of this because people have brought that to my attention in the past, but for those of you out there, if you think that there's some sort of jump to the front of the line because you arrived at the emergency room in an ambulance, you're going to be triaged like everybody else, and you're going to get a bill for 115 bucks. So, you know, I'll add to that. You know, there's different approach to ambulance services in different parts of the country. We do a lot of patient transfers in the back of an ambulance that is not an emergency and is not requiring a paramedic. In other places in the country, like in BC, for instance, they have a much different approach to patient transfers, whether it be for dialysis or a variety of other things or from a long-term care facility into a hospital for an appointment or one thing or another. We use ambulances. And how many times has that resulted in the fact that you call and there's a red alert? Now... Of course, the those responsible have been telling the frontline workers not to use that phrase any longer of red alert, which means simply there's not an ambulance available when you call. It's the national standard. It's actually how we measure the availability of ambulances. So whether or not you want to say red alert or I was going to say Amber Alert, but that's a, another real thing. Red Alert or a Scarlet Alert or there's no ambulance available. It's the same thing. And we have to be able to measure because that's one way to track whether or not we're doing the best we can and whether or not we have to change our approach. Let's take a break. When we come back, Ruby are next to talk about how drugs make their way to Newfoundland and Labrador. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Ruby, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. Thanks. How about you? That's good. I'm doing fine. Patty, uh, drugs, of course, drugs is on our minds 24-7 in this province right now because our our people are dropping almost like flies, and we have to be concerned. My concern is, and my question is, how is this amount of drugs getting into our province it's not coming in in a cavity or in a backpack on your back. The amount of drugs that's flying around this province today is probably even worse than what Ontario would be. Well, we had five overdose deaths last week, so I guess there's an issue with not only how the drugs get here, but also the drugs, the content itself, because obviously... Like you say, people are dropping like flies across the country. This is a major league problem. But, Ruby, the fact of the matter is every way that you can possibly imagine of people getting drugs in the province, that's how it's getting here. So it's coming via air. It's coming via ship. It's coming via the air, the commercial airline. So it's out there, uh, no doubt about it. I remember stories some years back where I think David Cockman did it for CBC. There was some of that late-night visuals of a small aircraft landing on Bell Island that was full of drugs. So it's getting here every way you can think of about it. Then you think back to maybe the big hashish bus in Ireland's eye where it was coming in via fishing vessels. So every possible way they can get it here, they're using it. But we are a port. We're an island. Yep. We have port and we have here. That's the only way it can get into this province. It can't walk on water. It's got to be brought here in a vessel. Or it's, like you said, the small planes and whatever... I think it's time that our government join forces with the RNC and the RCMP and start cracking down on this a little bit more. Be a little bit more carefully. You know, I, I myself have had to take my socks off in an airport. Yeah. Not only my shoes, my socks. They screen you very well when you come through. 
But that amount of drugs is coming in this province. It's not coming in in somebody's socks or a cavity. No, it's not. And it's coming with couriers. It's coming via Canada Post. And we hear different times uh, of arrests and seizures and busts that have been made and have a base understanding of how it gets here. But, of course, it could come from someone in their own private vehicle coming from Quebec via Labrador, getting on the ferry, coming to the island. There's drugs being manufactured in this province as well. So, you know, and... The RNC and the RCMP actually joined forces formally on the province's west coast, where it seemingly thinks that that might be the uh, most utilized part of the province for the importation of drugs. They have a formal task force on organized crime and drugs on the west coast. So I think the... I think the police activity is there, but similar to just the big concept of the war on drugs, right? And the amount of money that's been spent in North America, the United States specifically, regarding trying to protect the borders from drugs being brought in, trillions of dollars later, later, and the problem, the problem is only worse. So the war on drugs has been futile effort, hasn't it? Oh, it is. And, uh, but one thing, Patty, that's happening, and I'm only hearing this like everybody else. You know, I, I do a little bit of outreach, and, and I've visited the tents and supported them and drugs. I have a, a weak heart for those people that are addicted to drugs because somebody got those children addicted, and they grew up with it. But... I'd still like to know why if you, for example, I won't use myself, I haven't done it yet, but I'll just use you. If you call the RNC tonight with a tip that you know my house is a crack house and people are going and coming all night long, why isn't that bloody house raided? Innocent people have had their house raided. Why, if, if police are getting strong tips about crack houses, and I bet as much as I own in this world, there are probably just as many labs as there are crack houses, and they're making the drugs. They teach them that on on our social media, how to do it, and since the pandemic, I'm sure it's gotten three times worse than it ever was. I don't know if the extra money government pumped into people with the serve gave them money to build their labs or help them to study and find out how to make the drugs? Well, I, I don't have the answers. Well, the I roadmap don't. for that kind of stuff, I mean, you, you know, hopefully people don't... Uh to pay heed to this one, but you can learn how to do anything nefarious online. I mean, it's unbelievable. Oh you can learn how to print a handgun. You can learn how to make a bomb. You can learn how to make crystal meth. It's as much as a useful tool, it's a very damaging tool as well. Well, social media hasn't done our young people a hell of a lot of good. I will certainly agree with that because a lot of those uh, iPads and whatever are babysitters. They start out as babysitters for their children. And we know that. We've seen that. That has been proven. And then they go on to become an adult, and certainly they're smarter at it than a professor at university would be because they learn from that. But coming back to the drugs and and the drugs in our street and the homeless in our street and the mental health, because all this works and in and, the mental health, the drug addiction, and the homeless. They're and in and. Well, and until for we some. get some solution to this, and, and I don't know if you can tell me, I'll just go to the other issue of it with, with the oldest bit. 
do you know what the criteria is to get into the airport or to those 140 units they're going to open up in March? Nobody knows. Well, I mean, so certainly nobody's told us yet. Somebody apply when they don't even know how to apply. I had a young person who is out of province. He's from this province. His mother and father wants to know how they can get their son because he's living on the streets in Ontario right now. And they want to know how they can get their son into that uh, hotel. I wish I could tell them. Tell them I have called government. I have challenged every aspect that I know of to find out what the criteria, who and how do you get in there? How do you make an application? Who do you make the application to? I would imagine there's going to be uh, a variety of ways and methods, whether it be through work that's being done, let's say, for instance, at the Gathering Place or Stella Circle or Choices for Youth or with your social worker or your caseworker or your doctor. So I think there's going to be a bunch of different touch points for potential application and placement, but we don't know the criteria yet. And we don't know how they're going to vet potential residents uh, of that hotel and the 140 transition rooms uh, as of yet there's still lots of unknown unknowns regarding that and so it's hard to know whether or not it's a good idea or a bad idea until some of these questions are answered but we've asked repeatedly and we're still trying to get the information because it's supposed to open what is it the 22nd of february is supposed to be taken in uh patients or residents or whatever the right word is next month so i know yeah. and and you know people everyone i talk to and i'm involved with quite a few people in the illness and, and the mental health issues nobody can tell me and I have called the minister's office. I have asked if they can get the information and get it to me so I can pass it out to people. And if there's an application, is the application online? Do they go through housing? Yeah. Do they go through their social worker? There are just simple questions that nobody's answering. Well, I don't think they probably have a finalized, formal process ready to be discussed or what have you. Now, maybe in-house between those various organizations and social workers or the department proper, maybe they, obviously they've got the ongoing consideration how that's going to look, but we haven't been told publicly or formally exactly what it looks like. And those are pretty important questions that you're posing, Ruby. I'll give you the final thoughts before I have to go for the news break. Well, thank you very much. And if anyone out there know what that criteria is, if they could please call your open line and let us all know. They'd be more than welcome. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. She got the hanger up before I got to it. All right, quick check-in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Email address. I'll tell you what, Tony's call about ambulance services and the invoice coming in has gotten a ton of traction in the email. I'm going to say a couple of dozen since Tony called about it. And people talk about stories where they've had, you know, some Blue Cross coverage. This one emailer said they had 75 ambulance rides as a result of one particular person in their family with an illness. And at 115 bucks each, Blue Cross covered uh, 80%. But just imagine if you were someone who repeatedly needs an ambulance for whatever reason under the sun and the bills keep piling up like that. Amazing stuff. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to get an update about the base St. George Sport Recognition Project, and Roz wants to talk about pay inequality. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let us go to line number two. Good morning, Bill Hines. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Great today. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Here's some good news. Good. <laughs> 
Uh, we started our uh, our project. I talked to you about a month and a half ago. Yeah, I remember the call. Yeah, and uh, so uh, in the meantime, we started up our Facebook page, and the uh, response has been tremendous. It's uh, we're getting pictures and and stories of years gone by. We have pictures of the Porta Porta Vikings and Buckins playing in a Labrador tur- Labor Day tournament in 1956. Right to uh, the pickleball, uh, pickleball group that's formed a couple of years back here. And as well as Al Hancock climbing Mount Everest. He's from Steamville. So it's, it's been a, a positive project and I just recently on Tuesday spoke with uh, Bay St. George Chamber of Commerce and the feedback there was tremendous as well. Support from the mayor and the council, and everybody felt it was such a great idea. So it's it's been a positive move. I'm really pleased to hear it. When we spoke last time, I thought right off the bat that this is a great idea because, like everything else out there, with our heritage and our sports or music or storytelling, if we don't carefully collect it and preserve it, it gets lost, and that yeah. would be an absolute shame. Yeah, and uh, just to show the power of your show, uh, about a half hour after I finished talking with you, I got a call from a buddy of mine I played ball with in Grand Falls, Mr. Bruce Andrews, and uh, he had done a similar project in their stadium, in Joe Burns Stadium, so he invited me to drop by, and I dropped by crossing the island last week, and he done a fantastic job with his display in that where the, uh, Grand Falls has a hundred years of uh, sporting history and it gave me a lot of ideas and uh, he offered all kinds of help so which is tremendous yeah I mean I remember many many times walking the halls of that arena looking at all the pictures of the old teams and stuff it's fabulous work it's really yeah. great and there's a couple of stadiums in the province that do exactly that and I think it's you know really something for whether it be mom or dad or nan or pop or whoever while they're waiting for the kids to get on the ice to have a look around and you know share some memories and of course that would to get all sorts of pleasant memories and flashbacks for folks who maybe have seen those teams play in the past so I think it's great stuff what you're doing and what they were doing out to Joe Byrne love it yeah that's what uh, I feel so good about this uh, the Facebook page as well as that people get a chance to look at their pops and their their grandfathers and their dads in their heyday and it just warms everybody's heart and it's a it's a real feel-good project I must say so what kind of stuff do you have any uh, anything particular on your wish or your want list that you'd like to see come in the door uh, nothing in particular now, because we're going to have a meeting with the uh, sports organizations and interested people you know, around uh, tentative date of March 24th at the Steamboat Dome. So we're going to uh, see what kind of feedback we get there, and then we'll work from that. And then, you know, that's all we can do, just take it a, a step at a time. Yeah, because, you know, there's people with, inevitably, in the shed or the garage or somewhere in the basement, they've got all sorts of interesting, fascinating memorabilia that really does belong on display somewhere. So if you're listening to the show this morning and you're in the Bay St. George region, whether it be a former athlete yourself and or someone you know or your mom or dad or nan or pop, see if you can get it in Bill Hines' hands and we'll get it on display. And uh, I'd like to, just one more thing, Patty, if you sure. don't mind. Uh, I'd just like to thank my son, Stephen, for uh, for this idea and for pushing me towards doing this job. And also to Mr. Lonnie Young and Mr. Sean, Sean uh, Shepard. They helped me with the Facebook page. And to all the residents of Bay St. George who've... Uh, who've uh, 
add it to our page and the memories and such. And hopefully I'll get to see everybody at the rink and uh, have a great meeting, and we'll proceed from there. So details of the meeting one more time for someone who might have missed it. Okay, March 24th at the Steamboat Dome. It'll be at 7.30. Give us a South Just part of that so we can remind the listeners in the area. Pardon, I'm sorry, I missed that. Give us a call just prior to the March 24th uh, meeting, just so we can remind the listeners in the area that might be so inclined to attend. Yes, I will. I will. Patty, thanks so much, and uh, great show. Thanks, Bill. Stay in touch. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bill Hines, Bay St. George Sports Recognition Program. Let's go to line number six. Roz, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm a 75-year-old woman, and I've been undervalued all my life because I haven't got a university degree or a college degree. <clears throat> I worked since I was in grade eight uh, doing washing dishes in, in a restaurant, and then I went on to labor work all my life until I got injured. And uh, when when I got injured, I, I was treated really bad because I was a woman. And then uh, the part is my husband passed. Uh, like I said, women weren't even in title of pensions when I started at work. And when my husband died, I was only entitled to half of his Canada pension. And I think that is disgraceful. He worked all his life. I worked all my life until I got injured. So I only got part of a candy pension because I got injured. Workers' comp just dropped me like a hot potato when I hit 65. And like I said, I was unvalued every day that I worked. I had to fight for everything. I worked when I was pregnant right up until I had the baby. And then I had six weeks. I was thrown back to work. I had no other choice but work because it took two of us. Because he had no education, I had no education. It took the two of us to try to get a home to work. And like I said, there's lots of people still being undervalued, just like the little cashiers that got to put up with all the garbage from customers coming in and being ignorant to them. And and it really irritates me to death when I, I see it. I have to speak my mind. And I, someday I'm going to get a punch in the face for it because I just cannot stand back and see people degraded because they haven't got an education, degraded to the level, you know. And I made sure that my children got an education, even though they had to work to get it. They had to put themselves through school. I couldn't afford to put them through school, but my girls worked hard to get through school. And I encouraged it. Like I said, my children were blessed because they had the brains I did not have. Because I never had the education that I should have had. I got grade 11, but I couldn't read that good. And no no one picked up on it back then. I got the grade 11, no, no problem. I was smart in some stuff, but not in the comprehension. To read a story, a book now, I got to read it a couple of times to enjoy it. And, and, and it irritates me that I have to read so often to enjoy a book. And it, like I said, the part is undervalued. Seniors have been in undervalued all their lives. 
Um, anyway, Patty, that's how I feel. I appreciate you making time, Ross. Thanks for the call. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. You know, and in the world of adult literacy, there is a distinct issue here uh, in the province. We see the rates sometimes. There's news stories every now and then about it. There are some adult literacy programs out there that people can take advantage of because it's not simply about the ability to read a book or to read the newspaper. Just about everything you touch, whether it be the bills coming in the door for your cell phone or your cable television and or your bank, uh, bank statements. So there's a lot of different things, and even when you grocery shop, right? So there is a, an issue, an ongoing one in this province regarding adult literacy rights and so that's the topic that we can take on as well uh, let's go ahead and take a break when we come back Mike's there uh, pardon me Michael is there to talk about the patient connect program don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line three Michael you're on the air good morning Patty good morning to you yeah it's a frosty uh, sunny morning here and there's, there's a few pine martin on the go here that's pretty cool let's see if we can warm up your ear if you could take us off speaker to be beneficial to the listener please okay <laughs> Michael will call us back. Let's go to line number one. Max, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better. How about you? Not too bad, thank you. In regards to the gentleman that called about the ambulance service, yeah. uh, if you take an ambulance from a hospital, you don't, pay anything. you don't pay anything, but if you take it home to the hospital, do you pay? Sorry, say that again? Uh, I... If you take a, if you get an ambulance from the hospital to home, you don't pay. But if you get a hospital from home to the hospital, you pay. Oh, okay. Now I understand. So uh, I got a, I got an ambulance from a couple of years back now. Uh, I was transported to St. John's from Corner Brook. Uh, I got, uh, they got the Gander and they changed ambulance services. You had to change the ambulance at the hospital in Gander. Uh, I got a bill from uh, Corner Brook for $115, and I got one from the one in Gander for $115. But it was the same trip. Yeah, that feels like a bit of double dipping, doesn't it? Uh, it does to me, yes. It happened to me twice, so uh, I was really surprised because, uh, like I said, uh, I know it's cheap. It's still cheap to go to St. John's for, for a couple hundred bucks, but, I mean, it's still... If you got the rules out there, the rules are the rules, right? Yeah, but, you know, it was not your choice to have to change ambulance services and ambulances proper. So feels like that's a one fee still should be in place, but I suppose everyone wants their piece of the action. I suppose. Anyway, yeah. just thought I'd bring it to his attention. I appreciate the time, Max. Thanks, Betty. Take care of yourself. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. So, yeah, and, you know, is there a fee? Like, if, if it's not your decision to be transported by ambulance from one hospital to another. So, again, you know, was that an option for other than an ambulance? And I'm also curious, with the patient transfers that are being done, are there bills associated with that, or is that a different thing altogether? I'm not sure. Let's see if we can rejoin Michael on three. Michael, you're on the air. Yes, uh, Patty. Sorry about that. It was my fault. No problem. Um, yeah, uh, in December, I lost my uh, doctor, and uh, so in, in about a month and a half ago there, just after Christmas, I, uh, I went on Patient Connect. So I filled in all the information and stuff, and, uh, and they affirmed us. And then uh, in the past month or so, we've had a doctor come to, to Pasadena, and uh, the way he got patients, he set up a three-day 
time to call. Three days of uh, you could call in and from 9 to 4 o'clock, and it was just a crazy marathon. I know one of my buddies, he called in over 600 times in three days. And I called in about 50 times, but I never did get in. And uh, But they had enough patience after three days. But I, I thought about it afterwards, a few days later. I said, I never got a call from Patient Connect. And uh, so I called over to the, the, this new clinic, where this doctor is to, and uh, the receptionist replied, we don't have to go through uh, Patient Connect. We're a private practice. So I th- found that really interesting uh, and I, in fact, I know someone else who never got a call. But he did manage to get into this new doctor, but he never got a call from Patient Connect. So I, I, I think that uh, people who think that Patient Connect is the right way to go, you're not always going to get a call from them that there's a, a new doctor in the area. No, that's right. I mean, uh, Patient Connect is basically, if you are unable to find a doctor of your own efforts or accord, then you can be put on the list and Patient Connect will try to get a doctor for you. Okay. But you can absolutely go to a private clinic and see if you can be part of the patient roster 100%. So Patient Connect is sort of the last resort, I'll call it. That's how I got my family doctor, you know, okay. basically because I didn't really have anything bothering me health-wise that I needed something right away and I didn't have to go to the clinic or emergency room so I thought they can do the work for me as opposed to me getting on the phone and calling every clinic in the area I just put my name on the list and about 11 months later or 12 months later I got connected with my family doctor who I really appreciate yes now I understood from a good source that the this doctor could have called Western Health and got a list of patients in the area that needed a doctor I suppose they could have taken that avenue, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, in the meantime, I got chance of getting a doctor in Corner Rook. I just want to send it out in case I was the impression I would get a call if there was a doctor at all, right? So uh, just wanted to clear that up and maybe other people are of the same uh, view as mine, right? Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. if people have the time and want to put forward the effort to try to get a doctor with their own yeah. elbow yeah. grease or time on the telephone, that's absolutely available to yeah. you. If you want someone else to do the work and you have the time to wait, Patient Connect might be an option as well. Okay, well, thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You too, Michael. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, and, you know, with the Patient Connect, I've heard a variety of stories. Like, I wasn't anticipating getting a call in, say, a month to be connected with a doctor because we all hear the stories. Now, I don't really know what the number is. The NLMA uses something like 136,000 people without a family doctor. The province says it's somewhere closer to 50,000. I'm sure there must be a way through the MCP billing system to give us a better, firm, or closer to accurate number. But some of the stories, like someone called us a couple of weeks ago, maybe, and said they've been on the Patient Connect list for over two years and haven't heard back yet. So, yep. Anyway, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number four. Doc, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? Uh, great, boy. Great. I haven't talked to you in a while. Welcome back, Doc. I missed you dearly. <laughs> I've been busy shoveling snow. Yeah, don't be talking. <laughs> I figured I'd take a minute. Uh, this morning out of my shoveling routine and walking routine to to give you a buzz and just talk about uh, two things, really. One is the... I'm still waiting for the report from the PUB, you know? I mean, they were designated to do the study on the the formula for setting energy prices in Newfoundland, Labrador. It'll be two years now in June. 
and nothing. And nobody speaks to it like the Premier, the Minister of Energy, the head of the TUB. I've called a number of times, the Minister uh, Studley, uh, to find out what the heck is going on. I mean, you could rewrite the Bible in two years. A study, uh, have you heard anything? or did? No. But um, it's not that long ago that Minister Studley also told us that as opposed to simply news release from the PUB saying here are the price adjustments of the various fuels, we'd get a breakdown as how to how they arrived at it. Because, yeah. you know, the same price for a barrel of oil, and I know there's some logistic issues and geographical challenges and distribution issues, and that five cents for Silver Peak, and there's another couple of five cents in there that I don't think we really firmly understand. But help us understand why. Because there shouldn't be a vast difference between the timeliness and the adjustments made, say, for instance, in North Sydney versus this province, but yet we have a vastly different schedule and price regime, and obviously the input formula must be different here than they use elsewhere, so we were told we'd get a breakdown, but we haven't. No, and uh, I think it was the, the, the Premier or one of the Cabinet Ministers a while ago, uh, no, it was the Minister of Energy, I think, asked the the chair of the PUB to do an interview and explain what was going on, and the PUB just, just ignored it. Minister forgot about it. That's, that's it. Uh, you know, the minister, the premier, certainly has the power to pick up the phone, call the chair of the PUB, and whoever it is now, just issue a directive, get out, get the report out, explain to the public what's going on. But no, doesn't happen. And anyhow, uh, we live in hope, so I hope to hear something pretty soon. The, I haven't got. I won't hold my breath in the meantime. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about briefly before we move on. To, before we move well, on, I think you know what would also be helpful is if they're the folks who are using whatever formula they use and the different inputs that they use to come up with the price. I think it would be helpful to the general public to also have someone in that position of authority to explain to us the relationship between the price of a barrel of oil and its ups and downs and its fluctuation and the end result of the price of uh, uh, of gasoline because exactly. there's lots of confusion out there as to what that is. I mean, basically, uh, gas lean is strictly based on supply and refinery activity, whereas oil is basically done on a night-to-day spec or a speculation. So I think people would be enlightened if someone in that kind of position of authority could give us a real clear uh, ex- explanation about the relationship between the price of a barrel of oil and the price of a ga- liter of gas. You know, I think people would really be enlightened too if they knew the true amount of taxation onto a litre of gas, because that's not posted when you buy your gas. Oh, I can break that down. All kinds of taxes behind that final price. Yeah, I can break that down. That number's out there. You can get that tax breakdown even on the PUB side, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, when you get into their site, do you get the North Atlantic amount there, you know, that amount for come by chance? Well, that amount is actually being collected by Silver Peak, who used to be the former owners out of Come By Chance. And now Bray Renewable Fuels actually is through phase one. They're producing renewable diesel out there at this moment. Yeah, but you and I are still paying it. Yep. The other thing, Paddy, I just want to point out the relationship between the Can Arrive scandal on the federal level and our travel nurse scandal on the provincial level. What relationship might be there? Well, the relationship is they're both examples of a failed process. They're both sole-sourced, which should never be, 
they were both pretty well, from what I can gather, negotiated behind closed doors politically by people uh, in the PMO in one case and in the Premier's office here in the other case. Uh, and as a result of that, we have millions and millions of dollars federally and provincially. The, the figure here is uh, 30, $35 million over a period of five weeks that went out the door. Five months, yeah. Uh, five months, pardon me. Um, Single-sourced, no accountability, no follow-up, no oversight, no nothing. So we uh, just, uh, and, and the nurse's situation here, just picked that $1.6 million that was paid out for per diems and meals and so on for travel nurses. The travel nurses say, we didn't get it. So where'd the $1.6 million go? I had to assume that it went back into the coffers of this company, Canadian Health Lab. And, uh, you know, yeah. we'd like to know who they are. And I'd really like to know if there's a connection between that company and the Compass Group. Because their fingers, as you know from talking to uh, Mike Higdon, their fingers are everywhere. And I got a sneaking suspicion if you dig deep enough, you'll find a connection. I don't know. But, uh, but you see what I mean? The relation, both of these things are examples of government gone awry, and nobody is taking any responsibility for it. I heard Minister Osborne yesterday try to justify it simply by saying, well, we need these travel nurses. We can't afford not to have them. That's not the point here. The point here is that it was a failed process right from the very beginning, and there was no follow-up, there was no accountability, there was no accounting for the money, there was nothing just... Here's the $35 million, and go do your work. I mean, I think ArriveCan and the Canadian Health Lab contract are different for a variety of reasons. But, you know, even when, if it was a necessity, and I'm not going to argue that there was certainly a healthcare shortage, a healthcare professional shortage at the time, and the country was yep. scrambling. But yep. that still doesn't speak to a lot of the unknowns. And, you know, whether these were add-ons with cable bills and air fryers and coffee tables or whatever was part of the furniture purchases. So mm. that. Add to it when this began became a thing you know did we have any real uh long-term vision with what the reliance will look like the try to move away from it in a short order or in some sort of timely fashion because now we're at a point where they're a permanent they feel like a real fixture in healthcare now so you know we're unwilling apparently as a government to say that here's the date where we're going to make a staggered or laddered approach away from travel nurses whether that be refunding some of those millions back into the public system for on a variety of fronts so we don't really know because now that toothpaste is out of the tube so what does yeah. the path look like and i don't think anyone has an answer it's one thing to say they're a necessary evil and we had to do what we did when we did it but where does it end and how do we get to that point i don't know well it just seems that in 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 healthcare right now and in, in government right now you just slap money at things in the hope that things will get better it doesn't get better this is money that is your money and my money and by the way borrowed money and grandchildren and great-grandchildren into a long time in the future are going to be paying 
for all of this money that's gone out the door without any accountability. You take the Auditor General in Ottawa, unable to give a figure uh, on the arrive can thing because there was no record kept. There was no nothing at all to say who got what and where the money went and who did what to get paid and so on. And and here in Newfoundland Labrador, we have similar. I mean, there's just $35 million in five or six weeks. And, you know, I'd like to be able to say, look at a, a financial plan that shows me that that money was well spent. Well, I, I mean... Doubt it exists. Well, we don't really know how much it is. The, uh, Karen Hogan, the country's Auditor General, is guessing, based on information she has, $59.5 million, which is outrageous. So it's either straight-up incompetence or corruption or grift or whatever the right word is. And, I mean, the Conservatives, and I don't blame them on this front, they're even talking about... Uh, compelling GC strategies, which is a company of four people. And this is not the only yeah. contract they've had with the federal government either. They've made a lot of money on contracts with the feds and a variety of different departments. So on, I think the way it was put is that unless they uh, adhere to the summons that's put forward, they're going to actually ask the sergeant in arms to compel them forcibly yes. to present that's themselves right, yeah. in front of committee. So it would be nice to know what goes on here because, it's, again, it's not just about one thing. It's not just about one contract. It's not about one app or one pot of $60 million. It's the entire process with which government uh, adheres to procurement strategies and following up with detailed processes. You know, imagine not being able to understand through a paper trail exactly who knew what when and how much was spent. I mean, seriously, uh, government sometimes simply uh, acts like someone who's sort of oblivious to how they control money because, you know, it's not their money. So it becomes quite easy inside my business or inside my bank account. If I don't have a process with how I manage my money, where I spend it, who I spend it with, then how the hell am I going to ever keep the wolf away from the door? But governments just seem to be so unbelievably reckless and (laughs) certainly irritates me to no end. Uh, Final thoughts to you, Doc. You, you got it. You got it down right. And and the same thing applies to the nurses' situation here. I don't think government here knows where that thirty-five million dollars went, uh, or if they do, or they didn't want it to become public because there are certain things like that one point six million dollars that disappeared. Where did that go? What was it spent on? Who got it? And on and on. Well, it was invoiced so, by Canadian Health Labs, so we know where it yeah. went, but we don't know how it was distributed beyond that, right. which is there, which is a corporate problem and a lack of oversight. Now, I will say before we wrap it up that I can scratch my poor little pummeled brain as much as I want. I don't. I won't be able to come up with a link between Arrive Can and uh, the travel nurse contracts, other than the fact that pure procurement is problematic at every level uh, of government. Yeah, well, uh, the only, and I'll finish by this too, Patty, I'm still waiting for Premier Fury or Minister Osborne or somebody at the ministerial cabinet premiership level to come public and say what Mike Higdon says is incorrect and wrong and here's the proof. Well, we had the one of the VPs of NL Health Services on this show with the minister asked very direct questions about those types of contracts, whether it be Teladoc or Compass Group and 811. I can't remember the company that operates that, but we've asked those absolute questions straight up. Uh, yeah. Doc, i got to get to the break. I appreciate the time. Okay. Thanks, Freddie. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Break time. When we come back, snow removal, travel nurses, whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number two. Evan, you're on the air. 
Line number two, Evan, you're on the air. Evan going once, going twice. Evan's on hold. Let's go to line number five. Bill, you're on the air. Patty, how are you today? Doing okay. How you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Patty, I'm calling about the the nurses. Yeah. The situation with those travel nurses. Sure. And everybody trying to figure out where the one point or whatever two million went for food. Patty, my issue, my problem is, why wasn't it paid to help support our nursing students? Nobody seems to be talking about that. Pay to you know, nursing students them. how? What what does that mean? How? Well, my daughter, for instance. Okay. She's almost done her nursing. She's going to be a nurse in a couple of weeks. She had to travel back and forth clinical on her own dollar, work for nothing, snowstorms, pay for parking, pay for her own food. Fine, dandy, that's cool. I'm good with that. She had to. She can. She's independent. There was other classmates with her that had to drop out because they couldn't afford it. And here our government is paying X amount of millions of dollars to fly back to different places, fly around the world to try to recruit nurses. And we got them here. We got a, we got students that want to be a nurse, that want to help and can't afford it. So why can't the government even cut the costs of the student loans? Well, they've taken the provincial interest rate away from student loans, if I remember correctly. Uh, so inside that envelope, I mean, aren't there bursaries out there for these exact costs? Not until after they get a position, then they'll get a certain amount, you know, reimbursed. Yeah, I thought but so. Yeah. If they don't get a, re- a position, like... There's, I think, I can't remember what my daughter said. There's a few that haven't got a job yet, haven't got a job offer yet. You know, so, you know, when you think about it, someone's going to come here and set up at the Delta, you know, a job recruiting. And those nurses, our students, are going to get on a plane and go. And then we're, where are we at? We're back to travel nurses. I mean, I think that's the crux of the matter, personally. You know, when it's about compensation or cost coverage or bursaries, grants, whatever, that's certainly part of the conversation. And I think we can do both as long as we have a firm budget and how we manage that. But it's the whole recruitment issue. Like, I know that Yvette Coffey and others will say the real focus needs to be on retention. But, you know... When you have a captive audience sitting in a nursing school or a med school right there on the parkway, for them to not be in the conversation with job offers and kept in the loop where opportunities lie and maybe certain parts of the province that really need their services, because there's different rates of pay and there's different pots of money to entice people to work in more remote locations as well. So to not have that type of relationship between every healthcare professional in school and the provincial government, I just don't understand it. <laughs> like I really don't. Someone said it captured a beautiful once via, uh, via email and said she was at the convocation where her son or daughter was convoking for Mun and was thinking to herself I wonder if we've done an exit interview with every one of those 80 now newly graduated doctors who just walked across the stage about their relationship with the recruiting officer representing the government that would be a fascinating exercise and I think she's right no 100% 100% yeah, yeah I mean like, like I said Patty I got a saying with our government you don't take the bread out of your child's mouth and give it to the neighbor. But our government is doing it. They're taking the money from us. 
and everybody else is getting it. Everybody else is benefiting from it except Newfoundlanders. I don't understand. We're an aging population. We all know that. That's true. Right? I mean, we got youngsters, like literally getting aboard planes and yeah, to go to work other places and eventually going to settle there, going to stay there. So what are we? Tumbleweeds and, and, you know, done, over with. Newfoundland's done. Let's you know, hope that's not the case. I, I 100% agree with you. I mean, I hope it don't. Cause, I mean, I'll just start. I do love the place. There's no other place I want to be. But, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm hitting 60, and there is no more work for me. I'm done. I'm where I'm at is where I'm at now until I retire. And that's I'm not looking forward to that either because nine chances out of ten, I'm going to have to work after I retire, like everybody else. Anyway, Patty, I thought I'd throw that out there about the nurses. I mean, you know, we got student nurses. We should give to ours before we give to others. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call, Bill. All right. Thanks, Eddie. You're welcome. Take care. No. All right. Bye-bye. Will I get a snow clearing one in before we Dave? Yeah, let's see if we can get Evan this time on line number one. Evan, you're on the air. Hi there. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you all right. Great. Yeah. Sorry about earlier. I locked myself in a bedroom. It was like something out of a sitcom. <laughs> you locked yourself in what? In a bedroom. <laughs> you got locked in the bedroom. Yeah, but I could hear the radio. So I, I was like, and I was like running down the stairs, like, uh, yeah. you know. Okay, well, I'm glad you've been released. <laughs> Thank you. What's yeah. on your mind? Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's no clearing. Like, I know, I know, it's pretty hot right now. Like, I, I keep hearing. I, I, I was kind of just thinking about it. Let's see what I was here. Like, I am. Um, do you think it's? I haven't been listening all the time either, so you know, I might repeat some stuff. But uh, uh, do you think it's worse than other years? Like, like, because I, I mean, because I, it does seem, it does seem like people are talking about it more this year. Um, yeah, no, I remember when I moved here. Like, I moved here in '07, and it was like they, they didn't like. So I'm talking sidewalks, St. John's, no point. Um and they didn't do any. I think they did. I don't think they did any sidewalks. Maybe around like like a school of the school or something um so it's gotten a lot better but it's it's a lot worse than other cities for sure like uh, uh you know looking at montreal halifax in the winter uh no problems there really montreal probably does it a little better than halifax yeah. well i don't know if it's better or, or or worse i don't think it's a whole lot different now in the world of sidewalks the city did buy more equipment and have more people working in sidewalk clearing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it always feels like it's bad, especially when we get a significant amount of snow over the course of a few days like we experienced mm-hmm. last week here in town. So I don't really know. And I, th- I think the amount or the volume of snow clearing mm-hmm. conversation this year is similar to years past. Certainly sitting in this chair, it feels very mm-hmm. similar. As, uh, that's all I can say. Yeah, and it, I guess where we got, like, just snow, you know, it, we didn't have, we haven't had that much of a winter and then we had you know a week of snow so you know there is that but i mean i did notice like you know um what's well, nice you know you see sidewalk plows now that's good but even roads right like uh i mean let me look outside you know i, I was saying uh what there was that maybe monday like uh you know uh, i didn't see a single plow a single salt truck like now there was no fresh snow on the road but the roads were still that's better now but they were still uh covered in slush and everything you know and I, I didn't see a single truck single pile all day you think they'd be like you know put, piling on the salt like get that get that black visible you know yeah my road could use a little additional work the road where i live yeah that's for sure so uh, evan you moved here from where uh in nova scotia right out where did you live in nova scotia uh navis valley wolfville kentville kind of area cool Acadia. 
Yep. And what brought you here? Work or? University, of course. The university. University. Well, yeah. welcome. And what are you studying? Uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of on and off, but I, I, I did poli sci and then uh, philosophy. Like, I, I, that was in 2007, so it's just it's like a long time ago now. But um, I'm, I'm finishing my master's right now. Uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> so you're a master's student, but you couldn't get out of the bedroom. Yeah, I know, right? How many philosophers does it take? <laughs> to unlock a door. That's pretty great. Evan, I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, so obviously the messy weather that's coming is going to be potentially a problem uh, this evening into tomorrow. And you talk about a little shock to the system. So the year that we moved here from Alberta was in 2000. I arrived, I drove across, the family flew. I drove across with all our stuff, and I got here on Thanksgiving Day, Thanksgiving Sunday of 2000. And that winter, for the shock to my wife's system, that was the winter where we got about 700 centimeters of snow. Right, it was like 20 feet of snow, and that was our first winter here, and we're still here, so that's a good thing. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Pam, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm okay. How about you? Good. Um, I have something. I've been debating if I was going to make this call, but I honestly don't know where else to turn. Um, and I thought I would give this a try. Okay. Um, to give you a little bit of background, I guess, is I met a single father of three boys three years ago. And his first words to me were, you, you'll never stay with me because my ex will force you to leave. And I thought... How bad can it be, right? What did he say, sorry? He said, you'll, he said, you'll probably never stay with me because my ex will force you to leave. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I thought, well, can't be that bad. Um, but to say we're living like a, a TV show is an understatement. Um, we are desperate and need help, but the law just can't help us in any way. So what exactly is going on? Um, his ex harasses us continuously like yesterday for example we received 20 voicemails our phone started ringing at 5:30 this morning again we have four kids at home um just to give you an example uh, of one of the voicemails that were left last night was saying that we have hired the two assassins uh, from the fbi to kill her and that we have um we have went ahead and got a life um, life insurance policy and forged her name to it, more or less saying we're trying to kill her. Like, she seriously has mental health issues, like, serious. She's been diagnosed as a schizophrenic, bipolar, things like that, but continues to not help herself. Um, we have full custody of the boys, and yet she can continue to harass us daily, and nothing can be done about it. There's not a thing in this world can be done. You can't get an order of protection? We've went to, we actually tried to get a peace bond against her, went to court, and because she never ever physically said, I'm going to kill you, there's nothing that can be done. So it got thrown out. You know, an order of protection doesn't have to include someone saying, I will kill you. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, whether it be your health and safety uh, have been threatened. It's not a matter of whether or not you're going to be killed. Even the threats of physical violence, regardless of if it ends up in death, can be grounds for an order for protection, an order of protection. So that's really quite strange that they dismiss it based on the black and white of whether or not someone said, I will kill you versus I've hired two assassins. I mean, <laughs> that's splitting a pretty fine hair. Yeah, like, and I know that sounds like people are probably say, yeah, right, like, how can somebody, but, like, this is the life we're living. I'm not joking when I say, like, the allegations are 
outrageous. And she has a 17-year-old 17, 17 son, again, that we have full custody of. And I guess because he's the oldest, he always felt like he had to protect her, like he had to be there for her. So he continued to be in her life, which is fine. I mean, uh, all kids deserve to have a mom and a dad. Um, but she has gone so bad now with him that, I mean, he's on the verge of a mental breakdown. Our college child services try to get them to do something to help. There's nothing can be done. We have a police officer, I mean, up to 11 o'clock last night that was calling me. There's nothing, they're not willing to dig deep enough or they're not willing to help us enough. We've forwarded them all the voicemails, all the emails, everything that's being said. And it's like there's too much work. Like they, they could care less that, you know, we're down there living in fear. Um, she even went as far as posting to social media posts. So that, say in my area there's a marketplace and there's five different marketplaces. She went ahead and posted in the marketplaces saying that we killed a dog, uh, which we didn't. <laughs> uh, we actually got investigated for that because the police had to investigate it, um, saying that we killed a dog and we gassed them and stuff, and posted both of our work locations, posted our home address, where we live. So if somebody like a dog person or, you know, an animal advocate took that really seriously, like anybody could have come down and threatened us. But because she, you know, like she posted our home address, is that not something that can be done? But yet here we are, like I'm in this now three years and he's nine years as an ex. Like it's crazy. It's absolutely ludicrous. Like what's it going to take? Is it going to take us being physically harmed? for somebody, the police, to finally take action. This woman lives at Grace Sparks' house. She's been there for several months. I've spoken to Grace Sparks. Obviously, they can't tell you anything, and I respect their rules and I respect their guidelines and whatever. But how can a woman who's staying in Grace Sparks' house, because it takes care of battered women, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we're the ones being battered. She gets to stay in the Grace Sparks' house because she doesn't want to work. Um, and make these phone calls to us at 5.30 in the morning. Like, the children have school. It's a terrible story and set of circumstances. So have you spoken to a lawyer? Well, lawyers cost money, right? They do. I know where we, you can get we've some... We've had a lawyer uh, for the past few years fighting for custody of the children. So finally that ended in August. We finally have full custody of all three boys. Um you know, and she she represented herself in court, and I actually had to dismiss myself from the court that day because of the stuff that she was saying. It's it's so sad. Like she even <laughs> uses other people's names last night, saying that my boyfriend paid um, paid people to get those those guys that she were dating to give her drugs so that they could rape her, and like she's just totally mind. off the rail. Yeah, it sounds like a terrible situation. I know where you can maybe get some free legal advice. That will be awesome. Okay, I'd here's a number. You can give me. 709. Yep. 722. Yep. 2643. Yep. Okay. That's the Public Legal Information Association of NL. That's uh, The acronym is PLEAN. So they might be able to point you in some sort of direction. I'm surprised that an order of protection has been so difficult to get when you describe it the way you do this morning as to her behavior and the tone and tenor of what sounds like threats to me. And well, this is only, you know, I've only scraped the surface. Oh, like I would I imagine. Here. I could be here all day long. Yeah. Telling you the stuff that she's done to, 
you know, us and her children as well, right? Like, you know. It's a sad situation. Uh, call that number and send me an email or something to let me know if you have any luck. If not, I'll go back to the drawing board and see what else we can help figure out. Thank you so very much. I appreciate that. You take care. Good luck. All right, thanks. Okay, bye, Pat. Bye-bye. What? Man. I appreciate the patience of those of you in the queue. You're all up right after the news. Don't go away. You're listening to a rebroadcast of VOCM Open Line. Have your say by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And listen live weekday mornings at 9 a.m. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven. So good morning to the NDP member for Torngat Mountains. That's Leela Evans. Leela, you're on the air. Oh, thank you, Patty. Um, just listening to your news now, and also I got the opportunity to listen to some of your earlier callers. And Patty, I, as upsetting as this is to to be learning the true cost of travel nurses to our public health care system, I, I must say, you know, I was, I'm really pleased that the information is getting out there. People are talking about it. You know, like people are quoting the $35.6 million was spent for this service in just five months. You double that, you're up to almost $72 million, and that's not even for a full year. You know, and they're also talking about the gouging. Because one of the things that we need to distinguish is travel nursing is provided by the so-called middleman. It's for-profit nursing. And that money that's that's being taken by the companies is not being reinvested in our public health care system. And so it's important for us to, to realize that. So when the minister is talking about, you know, we can't, and, and I just listened to the premier, you know, we can't, we can't stop relying on travel nurses. But when you look at the cost of this program, six times the cost to our health care system. And that money is not being reinvested. And more importantly is how do we get here? And I think everybody needs to be asking, how do we get to this point where we're paying these exorbitant profits to companies? And also, we're having these travel nurses work side by side with our local health, uh, our local nurses that are part of our communities, a part of our, you know, our, our, our province, working side by side, but they're getting much more pay, much more benefits, perks, and what's really insulting is for our, our, our local nurses, this is the stuff that they've been asking for for years. And it's driven a lot of our local nurses from the healthcare systems in our province. They've either left the province or they've basically changed professions. So, Patty, like for us, is there got to be uh, an a, a accounting, and we can't have we can't have the premier passing the buck, blaming the health authorities. You know, like for, for us. This this really really needs to be addressed because we can't allow further erosion of our healthcare system. But for me, it's encouraging to hear people talking about it, because for me, what people don't realize is there's a middle person, there's a for profit that's being siphoned off of our healthcare system that's being wasted six times the cost, and also we've now established a two a two tier healthcare system where we have our local uh, nurses working alongside of these um, uh, for-profit nursing nurses, the travel nurses. 
Let me read you something that someone sent me very recently because, look, if there was a real dire need at the time when the travel agency nurse contract was let, okay, but we have never heard about what the roadmap looks, or what looks like to uh, walk away from our full reliance on them. Now, apparently the numbers have decreased in the St. John's area in recent past from 60 to 20. That's good, but we're still spending an exorbitant amount of money. And this is from someone who's uh, got a, a daughter in the nursing school and is uh, addressed to Andrew Fury. You can add more seats to nursing schools across the province, but you can't give the graduating classes, permanent full-time positions, question mark. You recruit from outside the province, offer, come home with your bonuses of $50,000, but you can't give a graduating nurse in the province any incentive or bonus. It goes on to say, approximately 80% of the graduating class this spring has only been offered temporary positions in the province. Like, I need an explanation to that. So, like, why is it? At the same time, the province puts some $3,000 in bonus money in front of casual nurses to join the ranks of the permanent full-time, but we're not offering full-time contracts to graduates. Approximately 80% of the nursing class has not been offered a permanent job. Why is that? I'd like to know. There might be some sort of reason, but it escapes me. No, and Patty, this contributing to the problem because we're not having people, uh, like, basically become uh, local nurses in our communities. In actual fact, a a lot of the nurses have left the the job and gone to work for temporary um, the the, the agencies and and be a a travel nurse. It's happened in my region, you know, where we've had a nurse leave, and then a little while later, the nurse comes back into the community, but she's now a travel nurse, and she has higher wages, much better uh, benefits, uh, uh, perks, and um, like one of the things nurses has been asking for for years is a consistent schedule so that they can book time off to spend with their families, to, to attend weddings, to attend graduations, to, you know, basically uh, have quality of life with their families, a consistent schedule. And that's not never been offered to our nurses. And also, uh, like, a decent uh, pay compensation for the work that they're, put in, they're putting in. So for us... For us, like in my party, like what we're we're really alarmed about is the government's refusal to not set a date to have us transitioned off of these um, travel nurses. But also, Patty, like what what I'm also becoming concerned for, concerned about, is nurses who work in the this in in the job as travel nurses. I, I really don't want them vilified. I don't want them to uh, suffer, uh, you know, consequence because of the failure of this government to actually establish um, incentive programs f- um, for our local nurses to stay in the jobs, to recruit and retain local nurses. I don't think we should be blaming travel nurses. They're professionals. They've chosen this job for reasons. And um, But I think what we need to do is we need to hold the Minister of Health and the Premier and this government accountable. And we need to point out that there's a middleman in this, to use that phrase, there's private companies that's making profit. And also, I was really glad to hear people talking about that $1.6 million that came to light that was paid, that was charged to the government for meals, but then to realize that the meals are not being provided to the travel nurses. So what is what does that mean? Is that fraud? Is that f- like another company? If you bill for services you don't provide, 
you'd be charged with fraud. Yeah, I guess that's a relationship between uh, the travel nurses and the company themselves. I don't even know how it's worded in the contract between Canada, Canadian Health Labs and the provincial government. Well, I guess, yes, the provincial government through the four regional health authorities. So it's all just a little bit confusing to me. It's encouraging to know the numbers are going down, but there still remains a ton of questions uh, that we still don't have answers to. But, but, but Patty, like for, for us, for me, that is why we're calling for Auditor General to do an audit. Like, really, they would have access to, to records that journalists wouldn't have access to. We as, uh, you know, in, in our caucus, we wouldn't be able to have access to. We really need to know the details, and we need to know the true cost that these travel nurses, uh, for-profit nursing, is costing our health care system. And, like, you know, we talk about our system being broken. But really, like the consequence of that is not only to our local nurses that are suffering, suffering burnout, that don't have quality of life, you know, that can't have a schedule, can't book time off, um, but also to the people who need medical care, that needs to have surgeries, scans, you know, like we, we, we see that. And Patty, like, unless you, have, unless you or a loved one is in the healthcare system, as a patient, you don't really understand how broken it is. So I think what we have to do is we have to start reinvesting in our local nurses and building up our public health system, right? We, we, can't, like, we, we, can't, we can't afford to be throwing away millions and millions of dollars for profit. And then when you also look at it, having the minister, you know, going around the, the world, you know, uh, you, your caller mentioned that, the premier going, you know, t- uh, across the world and, and holding press conferences, oh, look what we're doing, we're trying to recruit. You wouldn't be in this situation if you had been able to retain the nurses that are working and living in our communities. And we really got to address that six times the cost. These travel nurses... It's costing six times the cost, and we need to start lessening that. We need to start reinvesting in our public health, and we need to treat our nurses with respect and give them dignity. Appreciate the time, Leela. Thanks for the call. Okay, thank you very much. T- take care. Bye-bye. Leela Evans, NDP member for Touring Hat Mountains. And Tony says on Twitter, and there might be something to this, he says government don't want to offer full-time permanent positions because they don't want to pay the full-time benefits or pensions. That's a political miscalculation, I would suggest, if that's the rationale behind it. Plus, it doesn't necessarily jive with the fact that the government did offer, and I believe the number was $3,000, uh, signing bonus for casual nurses to join the permanent full-time ranks. So I don't know if that's the motivating factor, but the fact remains is that they're spending a lot of political capital here by you know stories like 80% of the graduating class this spring in the nursing school have not been offered a job, uh, and if they have, they've would have been offered temporary positions. So don't really know, but however you slice it, this is not working out for the government at the time. Let's take a break. When we come back, Lola, Lola pardon me, wants to talk about masking. And then uh, Sheila McKinnon-Drover from Larsh Avalon talk about an upcoming fundraiser. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Terry, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Teddy. How are you this morning? Doing okay this morning, Terry. How about you? Not bad, not bad. Well, I'm calling you this morning on uh, the town of Portugal, St. Phillips. Okay. Uh, the town has regulations like every other municipality around regulations and policies. The one I wanted to speak about this morning is their uh, snow clearing regulations. Okay. Uh, the snow clearing reg- in their snow clearing regulations, it states that basically no person can throw, uh, blow, or push snow out onto a street. And if they do, they're, you know, means they're liable for fines, that kind of thing, right? 
So I have a resident here in the in Ding that lives next to me, and basically for the last few years they they have a plow, and they've been plowing the snow across the street into the ditch. Hasn't been really, uh, you know, an issue. Like, you know, I mean, I know it was against uh, town policies and, and yeah, but like it never really concerned me. But this year, from snow clearing started, next thing they started pushing the snow in the ditch in front of my house. The ditch in front of my house is not a dry ditch. Basically, there's water running into it 24 uh, hours a day, seven, day, seven days a week, like in the 365 days. So I have concerns with, you know, I mean, with snow being pushed into this ditch, that, you know, I mean, clogging to the culvert and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I sent a, uh, an email to uh, the town, and uh, the director of public works emailed me back. And, um, you know, I mean, stated, yes, you are correct. This is, and he listed, you know, I mean, other things under the Municipalities Act and through the Highway Traffic Act. And basically, uh, what he said in the email was that basically they would have their municipal enforcement go up and speak to the resident and give them a warning. And also, they would have their uh, town foreman go up and give the residents a uh, copy of the regulations. Since that time now, that was on uh, January the 6th, we're up to February 22nd. They've done it nine times. As the town refers to nine offenses, I've sent in uh, pictures of it that are timed, uh, stamped, and dated. And for some reason, you know what I mean, I'm not getting no action. You know what I mean? I don't see, you know what I mean, this is continuing. Uh, you know what I mean? I look back, the town puts out a newsletter. Uh, it's called the Tickle. And in November and December's issue, they have a half-page article on the importance of roadsides, ditches in the town. You know what I mean? They say how they should be treated as waterways, you know, putting garbage into them and all that. But for some reason, the ditch in front of my house doesn't seem to apply. And from the lack of action from the town, it seems like, you know what I mean, it's implied consent to me that they're allowing this to do, but the regulation states differently. So I decided to attend the council meeting that was on the go Tuesday night, and I was quite surprised to see that there was a lot of residents there. It seems like there's an awful lot of people in the town of Portugal called St. Phillips not happy with the town. Uh, matter of fact, our new MHA, Fred Hopmuser, too bad he couldn't stay for the after uh, after session where where, uh, where residents can ask questions because uh, I think he, w- he would have been, you know, quite surprised of, you know, what people were bringing up, like, the legitimate concerns. But my only uh, uh, thing is, like I said, the town was supposed to get back to me. They said, you know, when I brought up the question, I asked them why this was going on. They're supposed to get back to me. They said, we'll get back to you tomorrow. They haven't got back to me as of yet. So it just, you know, I find it very ironic. Like, you know, I mean, the town has these policies in place. They're putting stuff in the newsletter. And they're telling me that this is, you know, against the law, is an offence, and it's tick of the book. But for some reason, they don't seem to have uh, done anything. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why. Have you actually spoken to the person who's plowing the snow into the ditch? No, I haven't. No, we don't. Uh, you know, we don't. We're not sort of on speaking terms. Okay. So, you know, I mean, I basically have to do this through, like, a third party through the town, like I said, right? Yeah, I you know, mean, I have, you know, <clears throat> you know, like the, there has been some counselors that have reached out. Like I said, seems you know, I have, you know, I mean, I have, but you know, I mean, for some reason, like you know, I mean, they don't want to, you know, act on this. Like I said, so I got, you know, 
You know, I mean, and I'm waiting for this response to suppose to come back to me and what the, how they're going to deal with this. Like I said, but when you have, you know, I mean, pictures, time to stay, showing the vehicle, showing this going across the road, pushing the snow. And, you know, I mean, for, for their own thing, like, you know, I mean, the, the, the road gets flooded or anything like that, like, you know, because it's like I said, you only put a certain size covered in, like, you know, I mean, what the town requests when you, you know, when you put a building back, you have to go to the town and basically, you know, say you want an, uh, access to the road and they tell you what you can put there and, ditch, you know, that's only meant to carry so much. But I mean, when you have a resident, you know, I mean, that has a very large driveway, probably a 10 or 12 car driveway pushing snow, you know what I mean, from, you know, massive amounts of snow across the street and into the uh, residing ditches, you know what I mean? You know, it, it, just, it just amazed me why town is not acting on this one. Yeah, because you've done all the legwork. You've got the investigative yeah, work that, completed. Yeah, that's what I mean. This is this is the thing, you know what I mean? So I'm sort of, you know, like running out of options, you know what I mean, what to do. Like, you know what I mean? I would like it, you know what I mean, if someone from the town, you know what I mean, I know the show is getting late today, but maybe tomorrow... To explain, because I'm sure there's other residents, you know what I mean, in town, you know what I mean, if this is allowed to be done, I'm sure there'll be other residents that probably will be willing to go up and buy a plough, seniors and stuff like that, and plough it all on the road. If this is, you know what I mean, this is, the town doesn't have seem to have any, uh, you know, objections to this, right, you know what I mean, you know, I would like to say, or, you know what I mean, I don't know what other avenue I can, you know, municipal affairs, or, you know, I may have to reach out to Fred Hutton himself, like, you know what I mean, to see if there's anything, you know, to the... Through uh, public or uh, municipal affairs, that can be done. Like you know, I mean, they they have these regulations stated in the thing. And I had, and matter of fact, Patty, every email that I've sent, I've also CC'd you on them. Like you know, so you have all these emails and all these pictures too. Oh, right? I've seen them. You've you've seen them, like I said. So you know, I mean, that's that, this is the thing I don't understand. Like I find that you know, I don't know. Like I said. It's a hard thing to, you know, I mean, to say, like, you know, I mean, thing, you know, is it a possibility there could be a conflict of interest? Maybe somebody on council is a friend or a relative of these people and are allowing them to do it? You never know where some of these potential contact, uh, conflicts might lie, but regardless, there's a pretty clear violation of pretty standard bylaw stuff. It's the same thing in the That's city of St. John's. I mean, we, you see it all the time. We're not supposed to shovel in the street, but there's someone very close by where I live. That's their favorite spot to put it, right out in the middle of the street. Same thing with plowing it across the street, you know, whether it be close by other people's driveways, which inevitably, inevitably the plow will just dump in my driveway. So, yeah, I understand your concern, Terry. Let me know if you make any headway with it. All right, then. Thank you very much. Very appreciate you well. your call. Take care Bye-bye. of yourself. Bye, Jerry. Bye. Yeah, as they say, sometimes the best neighbor is a tall fence. Uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Sheila McKinnon Drover. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to I'm be. so pleased to be able to reach all of your listeners because you probably have more than any other open line in the in the country. Um, I wanted to uh, let everybody know about our auction. You mentioned it uh, in the uh, introduction earlier, but it's our annual fundraising auction for L'Arche Avalon, which is an organization for which supports adults with intellectual disabilities. And we're working toward building two homes in the, uh, in the Pleasantville area uh, for people. Absolutely. And you and I have spoken in the past. And so this is actually an international federation that's been established called L'Arche, and you're representing L'Arche Avalon. So tell us about the fundraiser. Well, the fundraiser, um, as I said, is, a, is an auction. It's an online auction on Facebook. Um, it starts tomorrow, Friday, 23rd of February, and begins at noon and ends next week on Wednesday on uh, the 28th. 
the auction ends at 7.59.59 in the evening, in p.m., um, just so that there's no no confusion about who had the last bid in, because there are so many amazing things for auction. There's artwork by uh, Blackwood, Lloyd Pretty, um, photogra- and Leona Ottenheimer, photographs by Dennis Minty, uh, work by Cynthia Knoll, Patsy Goss, and we've got uh, athletic wear and gym gym uh, equipment, toning equipment, um, purses by coach, guests, Lululemon things, lots of Christmas treasures still, um, household items, like beautiful dishes, uh, food hydrator, a brand new magic bullet juicer, uh, foot leg massage, and <laughs> this will interest a lot a certain group of people. Uh, we have a paintball game with all the accessories, the masks and the, I don't even know how it plays, I know what the result is. Um, and a lot of beautiful plants too. One of our, one of our uh, members has been all year since last year cultivating house plants and uh, there's a lot of those up for sale children and babies things um, toys games and books so obviously a plethora of items to bid on uh, just to drive the point home talk about some of the programs offered by Lars Avalon and why it's important to raise this money well it's extremely important because here on the Avalon and I, I, I would like to say Metro I'm afraid I might be wrong there are more than a thousand adults with intellectual disabilities who who are not able to live on their own. Most of them, or a lot of them, are living with parents who, obviously, if they're already adults, their parents are aging. And you know, at some point, they're they're going to have to move and live somewhere else. And we would like to begin the establishment of large homes. And when I say homes in the area. Um, I'm not talking about um, the usual idea of a home where you have a bunch of people in their living and workers coming and going and, and uh, they're being looked after physically, but the quality of life may or may not be, you know, may or may not be good. But when we look at, think of a large home, it's um, a home, a family home. And interestingly enough, Patty, one of the, one of the books among the many Newfoundland and other books that we have for auction is a book called The Wonderful Bigness. Are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. Diana Daly? No, I'm not, unfortunately. Oh, is that right? I, I don't know if if uh, her family is, is uh, part of your family at all, but her uh, grandparents had, I think, maybe 12 children, and six of them were little people. They're related or, to me. as one time, were called dwarfs. Yep. And six were of normal stature. And it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And, you know, she doesn't pretend that life was easy. And it's an easy-read book, too, actually. It's, it's well-written and so interesting. And But... You know, people all all of they all lived together at home. They it was a it was a home, and um, the everyone was seen for their abilities, the gifts that they brought, as opposed to their disabilities. And it just reminded me so much of my own growing up 
because as I have a sister with an intellectual disability, and, you know, she was expected to do her share of whatever to the best of her ability, as were we all. And um, this book really touched me because it's so much like a lash home where you're, you're valued for yourself, for what you are and who you are and mm-hmm. for your abilities, you know, so... I knew many of that family, and uh, of course, they're from my father's neck of the woods, and they spent a long time living down Littledale, as a matter of fact, here in the city of St. John's. Now, I haven't seen the book, but I did go see the play at the LSPU Hall, it was called If a Place Could Be Made some years back, and that was lovely as well. And some of those people, regardless if they were uh, the shorter people or the larger people, some of them were sharp as a tack. I can well, tell you yeah, that much. You know, and this is the thing. You know, we look at people and we judge them uh, for whatever reason. And unless you get to know a person, you don't know what gifts they bring and the richness that they bring to our society and to our lives. And uh, so, you know, Lash Holmes would, you know, would foster that and culture culture that, you know, within within the family-like setting. So this is what we're doing, and uh, we're, you know, we're talking to government, of course, because we need operating funds before we can go to a to a building campaign. And um, but the value of of living in a home as opposed to living in hotel or a residence or an institution some other place that's not that's not family like is, I think, obvious to to most. To most people. Yeah, before we run out of time and get to the news break, you know, you talk about institutionalizing folks who need some additional supports. I think that's how Larish was formed back in the 60s with the conditions that I think experienced in France, if I'm not mistaken, having read about this uh, some time back. She'll give the folks the where the winds where they can find the items up for auction. Okay, they can go on, on Facebook. Um, it's online auction. Go on Facebook. On Larish Avalon, that's, I'll spell it because it's it's French. Uh, capital L apostrophe capital A R C H E Avalon online auction, and um, when you go there, there will be links to tell you you know where to go. You have to be invited to join, and I think and I don't know much about it, Patty, to tell you the truth. Uh, but anybody who's done online auctions, who's done that kind of thing, they say, oh yeah, we know, we know. You just it's pretty fundamental. It's not complicated. Yeah, you just uh, they you you just have to ask to join, and then someone lets you in. And right. So that's how it works, and it starts at noon tomorrow, and uh, it's amazing. And the Newfoundland books that are there, like Fred Rowe and um, Histories of Newfoundland, all of the Poldark series is. I don't know if you're familiar, I am with, familiar with that. Yeah. Graham, the twelve there are twelve books in that series. He's they're all there. Louise Penny, Maeve Benchy. <laughs> Um, anyway, sounds good. Are, are the history of Newfoundland by Patrick O'Flaherty? No, uh, I'm. Or don't, Peter Neri? I, no, I don't think their books okay. are there. But I think that actually, I was I looked at this one. It was history of Newfoundland, and I thought, well, that's Prouse's. But I think it was Fred Rose. It could be Fred Rose. It could be. Yeah. Uh, it could be Joey Smallwood. Uh, I do have to get to the news, Sheila. But good luck with the uh, auction and stay in touch. Well, I will. Thanks very much, Patty. You're welcome. Take good care. All right, bye-bye. Sheila McKinnon-Drover with Larsh Avalon. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Lola, you're on the air. 
Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing grand. How about you? Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm very upset and I'm getting very frustrated. I feel like that I am very, very, very discriminated. I'll tell you, I got two stories to tell you. But the first one was that I went in the ambulance from Deer Lake yesterday and I went to, I went because I had pains in my chest, was burning in my throat. My arms was heavy. I had a bad hit. I was sick stomach. I was well looked after in the ambulance, I must say. So when I got there, I was only there 10 minutes. They didn't have a bed. And I have health issues and I cannot wear a mask or a shield. They have my picture. They took, they wanted to take the note. And I said, I'm sorry, you can't take the note, but you take a picture of it. Or I'll add, I got it on mine because I don't want it to lose it. Same for my doctor that I cannot wear it. And, um, and anyways, lo and behold, within five minutes, they took me from Emerge, took me off the stretcher, put me in the wheelchair, and put me out where everybody was, too, coughing and sneezing. And I said, like, I cannot wear a mask. Please don't put me out there. I mean, I can't wear a mask or a shield. I don't want Put me in the corner by the bathroom. I don't care where I go or put me somewhere in the hallway. I don't want to go out there. So anyways... They put me there. So I waited for five hours. So then the uh, nurse came out and sung out to somebody. And I said, excuse me, can you come here, please, my love? Um, and I said, can you tell me how much longer I'm going to be? She said, oh, ma'am, I'm sorry, but you're going to be a while yet. So it was a lady there with a mask on. And she was from Deer Lake. I had a little chit-chat to her. I said, well, how long were you here? My God, my dear. She said, I was here since 9 o'clock this morning. And this is like... Uh, 9 o'clock at night or 8 o'clock or 7.30 at night, she's still there. So, I mean, I couldn't sit there with everybody coughing and sneezing and a mask on because it doesn't make no difference if you got your mask on or off because the cold, I'm that so frustrated, I'm sorry, that you can still, people wear masks, you can still get the mask with the COVID on. So, like, I mean, and I'm frustrated too because not only that, I'm a senior, my husband is 90 years old, and we had a family birthday party for him last Wednesday on the 14th of this month, last Wednesday. He's 90 years old, and I couldn't go up to his room at all um, because I could not wear a mask, but I could get into the building, and then I had to meet him down there. I had to have a nurse or LPN or whoever, whatever, bring him down to me downstairs. So where should we end up to in the chapel? So, anyways, we chatted there. He was glad to see me. He was crying, which quite naturally haven't seen me. And, I mean, I couldn't see him in Christmas because the COVID was on. And then, not only that, um, I had to address him. But where did I have to take him to? In the man's washroom. Like, excuse me, like, he's 90 years old. Like, I don't understand. What part don't they understand? Like, and I feel like I'm getting really discriminated, and it's not right. I mean, he's calling. He's calling me and saying to me, hon, are you coming to see me today? And night before last, he was calling me again, and he was crying. He's 90 years old. Like, it feels like to me that the seniors, oh, you're old anyway. To hell with you. You're going to die anyway. You're put all one side. And it's not only my husband. It's to all the seniors because I've done home care here in Deer Lake for 15 years, and that's I've seen it with my own eyes. That's the way they all feel, and they told me that. That's the way I see it. I like for the I like one second, please. I like for the minister of health because I'm fighting tooth and nail. I'm fighting. I'm getting very emotional, but I'm fighting tooth and nail to get in to see my husband, and I'm asking the minister of health, please give me a call. 
and I don't understand. I went into that hospital last night with a mask. Why can I not go and see my husband? If I got a scratchy throat or if I'm sick, I am not going to go in to see my husband or visit anybody. Okay. Uh, is there, do you mind sharing why it is that you're unable to wear a mask or shield? Yes, I, I have very, very, very bad claustrophobia, very bad, and that's the reason why. And now, and now I have really bad anxiety, really bad anxiety right now, and I'm taking anxiety pills, which I don't want to be on no pills. I don't want to be on nothing, but not okay. even nothing, like not even a shield, right? The doctor tried to put me on a shield, and I poof. I hit him with my arm. I said, oh, I'm sorry, doctor. I'm sorry, doctor. I'm like, I did. And I grabbed all of him. I said, I'm sorry. I cannot wear nothing. I can't put a scarf around my mouth. I can't wear a turtleneck touching my throat. I can't. Okay. And I'm just sorry. So you, you didn't get turned away from the hospital, though, did you? I never got turned away from the hospital, but I'm turned away from the home to see my precious darling husband. He's 90 years old. I never got turned away from the hospital, but I'm turned away to see my husband. I cannot go to and, his room. And it shouldn't be the case. Uh, that much I will say. So, you know, the minister was very careful when this announcement was brought forward. You know, he pretty much said the government is not asking for this to be reinstated. It was the one department inside of public health. So I, if I was you... I would start with public health because that's you're going to get the runaround with the Department of Health Community Services because they'll say it wasn't our decision. So if I was you, that call, I'd place it to public health to see if you can make any headway. Well, I did make, I made, I've been on the phone. I have been on the phone. I even went to the head head of Western Health and I even went to the, the MHF office here and I went to God bless and our mayor here or like everybody's fighting tooth and nail for me and I just don't know I even called uh, Mrs. Pickett Mrs. Pickett and they even said somebody said oh yes you can go and then within three minutes oh I'm sorry we're having a meeting first to see if you can go then they call me back and say I'm sorry we're having a meeting then four days after I get the call. I get a call. I'm sorry, you can't go in. I mean, come on. Like, my husband is 90 years old. He's not an animal that's going to be put down. Like, right, come on. Lola, if I was you, I would call public health because the health authorities or NL Health Services or the minister responsible, they're simply going to say the decision was made by the public health department. So try that avenue. Uh, Give that a shot and let me know if you have any luck. Okay? Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. You're you're welcome. Good luck. Take care, Lola. Okay, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Christy Pete. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing excellent, actually. The reason why I'm calling today is I wanted to share with your listeners uh, some updates on our wonderful group, Caring Cards and Elf. I love it. What's going on? Um, well, we're actually celebrating two years of Caring Cards and Elf. So I'd like to share with your listeners what it is that we do, what we've accomplished, and just acknowledge some of the incredible people who have supported us over the past two years. Let's go. I love the program. Okay, excellent. For your listeners who are unfamiliar with our program, we are a volunteer-based group, and we provide thinking of you and handmade birthday cards to people in our community. Um, This group started out during the height of the pandemic when Mike, who started the group, wanted to see a senior in one of the long-term care homes, but due to COVID restrictions, uh, he was unable to do so, and he provided that senior with a handmade card, and we started out with one handmade card, and now, after two years, um, and even this year, in 2023 alone, we had 8,171 cards donated uh, to our program. 
So we've really expanded, we've really grown, and we've received so much support from the community. Um, I guess I just want to share some things. Um, we've had uh, people from ages 3 to 96 years old make cards for our program. We've had people that are struggling with cancer at home that have made cards to send to our program to other people. Um, I've had so many stories of people who have joined our program who, who have experienced a lot of hardships themselves who wanted to brighten someone else's day, and they make cards for our program. I also want to thank, we've even had the staff of the Growlers um, a little while ago, and they got together a small group of them. They made 57 cards in a couple of hours for our program. So there's so many people I'd like to thank, you know, the staff that work with so many seniors that have gone that extra mile. Um, even my neighborhood, they've come together so many times, the children, to support our program and make cards and sort cards and do so many wonderful things. Um, we have the sports teams, all the schools that have been involved. I'd like to thank MHA Craig Party. Craig has been a big piece of what we do. Um, he has always supported our program since I reached out to him last year. Um, I'd also like to thank a lot of the nonprofit organizations. We're partnering with a lot of nonprofits now, especially the Poddle Center. They've been a huge support for us. So I'd like to thank Leanne Lewis and the Poddle Center for all that they've done. They've made hundreds of cards for our program. And I'd also like to thank the seniors. We're still out in the community trying to do some seniors card-making events, still providing cards for long-term care homes. And it's one of the most uplifting experiences I've ever had to go into seniors' homes and see and hear how much they appreciate what we do. Even when we make cards with them, like the enthusiasm, they, they just love it. And it's just really so uplifting and so rewarding. I'm sure you've put plenty or thousands of smiles on seniors' faces when they get these cards. So it's just fantastic stuff, what you and everyone who's contributed and everyone who's stuffing cards into envelopes. I think it's just wonderful what you do, Christy. Keep it up. Thank you so much. And I just wanted to say, Patty, we have a core group even of volunteers. Uh, this small group of, say, five or six members, these are people that I can call on. If we have someone reach out to us that would like a card, uh, they are there right away to help support our program. And what we all have in common is that we want to bring encouragement, kindness, hope, and support to all the card recipients in our community. So without those core people, we would not be able to keep this going. So I just want to thank everyone, all the donors, and all the partnerships that we have to keep all of this going, and we hope to expand again in the near future. Appreciate the time, Christy. Stay in touch. Keep up the good work. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. See if we can get a couple on before we run out of time. Line four. Valerie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. It's, uh, it's in connection with the question of the day, and it says it's important that your new hospital remain in downtown. I don't understand why the other uh, communities are not getting involved in this. I, I don't see that there's much room in St. John's for this new hospital. And, I mean, we have they have lots of land in Galway where, you know, you have the space and then you'll be able to offer parking, whether it be free or not. And I was just, uh, you know, in response to this today, I just feel that it's not just for the downtown core for this hospital. I do believe it belongs to all Newfoundlanders. We're all paying for this, and we should all be able to have access to it, whether it be from the CBS, the Southern Shore, Paradise, 
you know, and beyond. I don't know what the proper place is. It's, I'll be surprised if they can find a suitable plot of land in the north or the west end of St. John's, to be honest with you. So I'm going to surmise that this is going to be, uh, it's going to be, have to be on the Northeast Avalon. I mean, just when we talk about the population of the Northeast, that just makes sense. But I'm not going to be surprised if it ends up somewhere like you just mentioned, whether it be out in Galway or somewhere else. But I'm going to be shocked if the Grace site is not big enough. And I'm not even sure why we can't just build up more versus out more uh, when we talk about the hectares that are consumed by the Cornerbrook Hospital. But fair ball. I don't know where the appropriate piece of land will be. The government says they haven't made any final decision, even though Minister Abbott indicated that the Grace site is not going to be big enough. So, I, nor have I heard any other municipalities and or municipal leaders say that maybe the hospital should be in my community. So I'm a little surprised by that. Yes, I'm a, I am taken back with that, with only Danny Breen, you know, going forward with this, when, like he said, it's not a St. John's thing. It's Newfoundlanders own and pay for these hospitals and that, and we should all have access, and access also meaning that why should we be paying for all this parking when, I mean, they can give us, you know, some space for the parking for all of us, visitors or patients or whatever you know you know they I, they never take into account the parking for the people that go to these hospitals and that it's all just a money thing you know stop pay, get your ticket pay and then you can go you know I totally get where you're coming from. So I've, we've heard Mayor Breen speak out. We have not heard, whether it be from Dave Aker or anybody else, about maybe the, just maybe their community would be a possible or a potential home for this new hospital whenever it actually gets built, which is also, I think, another looming question. Valerie, fair point. Would you like to say anything else? No, I thank you very much for taking my call. I appreciate your time. Thanks for this. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, last one goes to line number one. Kevin, you're on the air. Hi, Kevin. Yes, sir. Go right ahead, sir. You've got the last word. Yes. I'm senior citizen. I phoned you before about the, the front of the car. Is someone come along and drop the blade? Okay. And uh, that's all I want to stop. That's all I mean. I mean, <laughs> my old back gave over on me, see, and I can't. Kevin, you're the fellow from Buckmaster Circle? That's correct. That's correct, sir. Okay. So give the house number one more time in case someone is riding by the circle and wants to drop the blade for you. Yeah, 196. 196 Buckmasters. Let us know if you have any luck. Okay, my friend. Thanks for being here. You're welcome, Kevin. Good luck. Goodbye. All right. Goodbye. Take care. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Uh, good show today. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.